For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Hurt Tell. Okay, we did this last year on the 4th of July. Might make it a tradition, so it's fun on Independence Day to talk to one of our Brit friends, Ben Harris, back on the program once again. Thankfully, not wearing an Aston Villa jersey that he rips <laughs> on and takes his sweater off right as I press record. Thank you for not doing that, my friend. Welcome back it's okay. to Hurt Tell. It's out of season. So. Is there any such thing for uh, a Villa fan, though? You guys are always yeah, yeah, hoping for the new day, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's um. I mean, it wasn't too bad last season. We had some ups and downs, but uh, this new season starts in ooh, about a month and a half now, so it's not a long way. So, um, we made some good signs though. So I'm quietly confident, but we'll see. That'll probably be obliterated by September. Yeah. One nice thing about um being a, a soccer football fan is the off season is very short, especially in a World Cup year. It's pretty much non-existent, so that's a good thing. Um. All right, buddy. Well, this, we're do- well, this year it's uh. Well. I was just to say this year the World Cup is um, in November, December, so it's it's really crammed in the middle. It's not usually like that, but it's because yeah. it's in Qatar. So, yeah, and we're going to be talking plenty about that when that happens. But um, by the, by the way, we've got England in the first round, I believe, um, in the group stage. Uh, the US I'm looking forward to that. Do. Yeah, so that's that's going to be. A I think fun I actually one. might want I might want America to win because I don't actually like the English football team. If it was rugby, rugby, I'd support England any day, but football. See, here we go. The hot takes are coming already. We haven't even dug in yet. Okay, it's the 4th of July. We did this last year. Uh, For folks that don't know, you've actually done quite a bit of work. You did your university work on the special relationship between England and America. It's pretty unique in world history. We've had, we've had, England's got a pretty good relationship with most of what used to be the empire, most of the old colonies. They're allies with almost all of them. Talk about for a minute, though, it is pretty unique in the history of the world what America and Britain has done together in the last, oh, I don't know, 240-odd years, isn't it? Yeah, I can't think of a, I mean, I guess it's, I can't think of, I mean, maybe there is, I mean, I'm not an expert in history, but I can't think of any period in history where you've had, essentially, the world's main superpower peacefully hand over to the to the next one, which is what we did with the U.S. I mean, obviously, uh, we were in conflict with the U.S. in the, I don't know, 1700s, 18, early 1800s, but when that handover actually took place, you could call it a handover in uh, sort of the late, the late 19th century, early 20th century. It, it was very peaceful. We, 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 we were on the same side in the same walls. So it wasn't like great. It was throats. And usually that doesn't happen. 
Is it even comparable? And again, we're not history guys. We're just guys that, you know, admire each other's countries here. But, you know, it is interesting that you had, you know, the Pax Britana um, era of peace and the naval dominance, especially of the Royal Navy that made worldwide trade as we know it now, you know, the building blocks of that. The Americans have been a little different. It's been more economic, of course, militarily in World War II. And we, you know, the Marshall Plan and reset the world order and then the Cold War. It really is amazing that these two countries, you know, for the last, what, 300, 350 years, this has been the dominance of the Western part of the world. It is. And I think it's probably language plays a lot of part in that because there's there's always that shared language. And obviously a lot of, yeah, so it's, you no, know, it is quite unique. Obviously, as you know, a lot of your, um, your founding fathers, they took from British ideals, French ones as well, but there was a lot of British ideals there. And we and the Anglo-Saxon uh, sort of way of doing things is, it's very well known so how does um how did you how does the british folks view uh we make a big deal out of independence day obviously uh technology is such now with twitter that you know they're probably more aware of it and think about it more than they maybe did 10 15 years ago uh is, is it just kind of a funny thing how is it viewed when we really have our independence day there's some good nature joshing of course about it but what is the view of our independence day for over there I think aside from the, the good natured jokes, um, I think it's become more of a thing here than it used to be, probably because of social media. I mean, Black Friday, for example, is a good example. Black Friday, even when I was growing up, so talking, you know, 15 years ago, uh, even 10 years ago, Black Friday was not really a thing, whereas it very much is now. Not Maybe not as much as it is in the US, but it is a thing now. And uh, I think it's so uh, social media down to that. And I think that's the same Independence Day. We do get a certain level of independence day stuff here not much but we do get a bit of uh independence day things and obviously there's always the, the jokes but oh, we, you'd be better off if you sound of the queen that sort of thing so um yeah I, I think it's social media has brought us together a little bit and we, we we're increasingly you're getting our trends and we're getting your trends it's so fascinating we were talking i was talking to another friend of ours on the other day and it- and there's kind of this running joke that America doesn't have a singular culture that it exports to the rest of the world. And I was like, well, that's interesting because the rest of the world sure does copy a lot of it and complain about it a lot. So there must be some <laughs> kind of American culture. What do you see it, especially in England, where, you know, there's the common language, there's the history. There's a lot of overlap there, obviously, when it comes to social media, because we can actually talk to each other because there's no language barrier. Mm. What is the American culture creep in England? You just mentioned that we're crossing cultures. Some. What's some of the obvious examples that you see over there that we probably don't think about? Well, I think the main one is uh, politically. There's a political culture crossover, and and a lot of Brits get really get really arsy about this, and they start going and rants about the American Empire and stuff. But this isn't something America is doing um, consciously. But we do get a lot of American culture wars do tend to transport themselves here. My, I may have actually said this a year ago, but when I remember when the the Black Lives Matter protests were happening, um, we were getting similar things here about you know, the police, even though the police uh, and the, in the UK is totally different to policing in the US. You don't really get uh, police officers killing civilians. It just doesn't happen at all. I know it happens in the US, you know, depending on the situation, it happens you know, a fair bit, but it just doesn't happen at all. We're, we're, even then, during the protests, people were still acting as if the police here were killing, you know, people every day. That just doesn't, and the, certain, to a certain extent, the race stuff as well, even though, again, it's a different story. Now, it's not saying we're better or worse, but there is a different history there. I don't think that's being taken into account. Let's talk media too, though. Um, the British press has always had their own flavor of doing things, but I've seen mm. a lot of cross pollination there lately. Our press has gotten, you know, especially the tabloidish uh, British media. We see a lot more that, you know, our TMZ and things like that are kind of more of that model than traditionally. And I've seen kind of the political media 
you know, we're having an explosion, a lot of alternative networks, a lot of alternative news sites in British media. That's more of an American influence, I think. Mm. I think even in the straight news world, and of course, the BBC is partially publicly owned over there. So we need to get that out of the way. So the competition's a little different than America. Yeah. But I, I think I think there's some very clear examples there of cross pollinations of culture when it comes, especially to the political media and how they're covering things, because it is a global yeah, right. media thing now. Yeah, the one thing I've noticed actually in, in the last five years especially is the rise of what I would call the monologue. And personally, I don't like the monologue at all. Uh, I can't stand it. But you could do a monologue for 10 minutes and I would agree with every single word of it. I still wouldn't like it because I just, the people giving these monologues are just broadcasters and so I couldn't care less what they think, left or right or centre or wherever. But that's one of the big things I've noticed is we're getting a lot of monologues now uh, where these broadcasters will sort of read these scripts and they'll give this monologue, um, which I didn't notice. And obviously it's, it's sort of the... Was it Bill O'Reilly that did it? Used to do it on Fox. Somebody used to do it on Fox, and he used to be well known for. It. We've been getting that, and I think also we've been getting from Australia as well. So I think Sky News Australia, um, they own now you know some media here, so it's it's sort of come across that way as well, not just from US, from Australia as well. Yeah, it was funny because you know we have a we work with our Young Voices friends. They have a UK branch, and I started getting media requests, and they're like, "Hey, can you do Talk TV in Britain?" And I'm like, "What's that? I've never even heard of it." And then, you know, you have talk TV, talk radio, uh, GB News has started up now. It's not just, you know, BBC and Sky News yep. and Times Radio, which I've done Times Radio a few times now, which is, you know, except people don't realize the Times is the biggest newspaper in the world for the English language. Well, Times Radio is also new. Yeah, Times Radio but, is actually quite new. The Times yeah. obviously isn't, but Times Radio is new. Yeah. But that's a huge change. I mean, that's that would be like the New York Times here having its own media outlet, which they kind of do, but not to that level. Times, Times Radio is a big deal over there. And it's very interesting watching. This is all in the last yeah, three, yeah. four, or five years. Watching these media companies, these legacy news people, they find. I think they figured out to turn the corner in British media. Of okay, we've got to go digital. We've got to go multi-platform, just like the rest of the world. It's really been. You take something like the London, the Sunday Times. I don't know how long it's been in print. You know, hundreds of years. That's a pretty remarkable culture shift yeah. change for them, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I, I think it is probably partially to do with the since Brexit there's sort of there's been an explosion in sort of interest among regular people in politics i've noticed it just some people i talk people people i know who aren't really political who are now more political and more aware of what's going on or you know sort of they they get more information because there is i guess it's infotainment isn't it infotainment is becoming a big thing over here it, it wasn't 10 15 years ago but it very much is now and obviously the, the newspapers have to adapt to that because um, obviously, unlike you would know, obviously, unlike in the US, um, you know, sort of the newspapers are um, the national newspapers, which we, which we get, who they back in the election is a very big deal. It's it's traditionally seen there. Who the, the Sun, for example, when they back someone, that's seen as a really big deal. And I don't think you have that in the US where the newspapers still hold such a big uh, hold over public opinion. Although, of course, the endorsements of the newspapers is sort of lessening in, in importance nowadays, because, as you say, social media is becoming all important. No, and to the point. I actually wrote a piece about it when it happened. The New York Times did this multi-day reveal of who their endorsement was going to be, which is as close to a national paper as America has. It's, you know, them in the Washington Post, mm-hmm. pretty much all due respect to everybody else. They had this big reveal of who they were going to endorse. And the the elevator lady, who's the, the security lady in the elevator gushing over Biden, became the viral story of the whole thing and completely washed out the endorsement of the New York Times. That was the story. And it's such a <laughs> microcosm of how media works now that, and they did this gimmicky thing where they picked uh, Elizabeth Warren and uh, Gillibrand. They're like, well, maybe the best woman. You know, they, they kind of bailed out. They didn't stick the landing in picking their NBC. Yeah, yeah. But the, the viral moment was the real life 
closer to the working class woman in the elevator talking to Joe Biden. And it turned out to be, you know, kind of prophetic in how the campaign goes. So to your point, yeah, it, it's it's very, very different here. You know, we almost roll our eyes at newspaper endorsements anymore because they're just not because everything's digital media. Y'all kind of backwards where it's it's just now catching up to digital media, but you can see a trend that way. I wonder if it's this. This is just me spitballing a little bit, but I've got to think because news media is a business. Right. And you've probably seen this working around Parliament a lot because you see them. You see when they set up on the green across the street, you know, you know, something's going on. Right. There's no yeah. way they didn't look at the coverage and the clicks and the ratings for Brexit and go, hmm, this has been a lot of money for the last two, three years. We should figure out a way to keep this money train going. I think Brexit was an eye opening moment to them on how they're going to cover things business model wise going forward. It's got to be because they got great ratings for it because everybody was engaged in it. The whole country was very engaged in it. And when that goes yeah. away, your ratings go down. I think that has to be part of the media environment now in England, doesn't it? Well, I agree. I think I think one thing Brexit did do, this is it was a case for both Remain and Leave. I, I supported Leave, but I wasn't, you know, I vote Leave again, but I'm not like a 100% diehard Leave, no matter what. But, I, you know, the one thing about Brexit was it, it did highlight the culture culture side of things. Um, although the campaign itself was quite a policy one, the, the certainly in the aftermath, it's pretty clear that there's a Remain Britain and a Leave Britain, which actually has separate ideals on things, which actually have nothing to do with the EU. I mean, there are people who, who you know, probably are actually, you know, ambivalent towards the EU, but are staunch Remainers because of what they feel that culture represents, and likewise for the Leavers. So and I think, you know, media has tried to capitalise on that, and they've they've sort of seen, well, this is this is where it's going now. Most nowadays, people, I feel like nowadays, um, there's there's a, there's a, there's a higher a lower a lower ceiling, but also a higher floor for a politician's support. I feel like the you know it's, it's a lot less inflexible now than it used to be because of cultural wars. People are just going to back their side no matter what, and they pick the side and they follow it. Like I do a football team, it's very similar to that. At least I feel like as a sports fan, it very it feels very similar to how I back my teams. It's it's this very tribal, well, I'll back them no matter what sort of thing. Yeah, and let's not get into uh, football and backing teams. We'll be here all day. Uh, ben Harris, our good friend over in the UK, <laughs> continuing the tradition of talking to, or as they call it, O for two day over yonder, uh, American Independence Day, talking to our British friend. Um, we joke about it. One of the great honors in my life, though, and and I've got this on my mind because Woody Williams just died. That's the last Medal of Honor recipient uh, from World War II generation for mm. the American side. I, saw that, yeah. I remember I was, and it just happened by accident. I was in London for the 60th anniversary of D-Day, and I I was actually you know uh, on the HMS Belfast. They were actually filming a, a documentary on the fantail of the ship. I got to meet some of the British um, veterans of that con. Just one of the real honors of my life. I'm just just, just saying, sitting and talking to these guys because they were all queued up to go do interviews and things. And just by happenstance, I got to talk to them. Um, that generation's almost gone. Uh, we're very aware of it in America, of course. Mm. Same thing in England. That generation is just about gone. I don't know what the numbers there are. We're down, we're down into the low um, hundred thousands and dwindling quickly. Is, is there a sense in England as well? Because that's mm. kind of the last war we really fought together. Not that we weren't in, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq and other parts of the world, but that's the one everybody thinks about is us coming to World War II, Britain standing alone, and yeah. then the American came alongside. That's just a big part of the mythology for both of our countries. Uh, is there a danger of that sliding into history a little bit with that generation passing away? Is there an understanding of like, this is a title shift that this generation is almost gone and we're just going to read about them. We're not going to be able to talk to them anymore. 
Um, I don't think the special relationship or whatever you want to call the US-UK relationship will change much in relation to that. But the one thing I do feel, the one thing that will be the big change is, uh, and hopefully it's not for a few years yet, is when the Queen dies, because that will be, she is seen as sort of the last remaining um, sort of, you know, she actually did serve in World War II uh, to an extent as a mechanic, I think, as a volunteer mechanic. So, and and she is seen as sort of the last uh, remaining holder from that time. So I think when she does go, that will be, that being and more than anything else a big thing because it will signal a sort of change of the guard and as you like you said it's the numbers are, are quickly dwindling um you know we it's yeah i think i think to, to have it to have served in world war ii now you have to be close to 100 at least now i mean you get into that point now so it's it's uh unfortunately that's a bit of history we're losing but i think it's the, the world war ii because it's seen as the last good war that is still in people's minds and i think even people who who don't even have any family they spoke to who served in the war. People who don't even have grandparents who were who are old enough to have served in it. I do think there still is a very much alive today because we do learn about it a lot in school. And it's driven it's driven to us a lot. You know, Winston Churchill and sort of the mythology around Britain in World War Two is a big thing here still. So I don't think that we will lose that talking point. I think that'll always be there because I know you guys also have a similar. Uh, you know, you see the World War II as the last good war as well. And it's, it's you know, Korea is forgotten. Vietnam is, is sort of seen as the bad war. And it's it's very similar over here in terms of how you see the war, World War II. Um, so I don't think we're going to lose much. I, I lose much in terms of how we communicate with each other. But of course, the experiences that, um, the first time experiences, you know, that we lose will be, you know, impossible to, to value. Yeah, it's interesting because just in my lifetime, I'm not that old. I'm just, I just turned 42. When I was a kid, if you saw any elderly man, you basically assumed they were a World War II vet. That's how, you know, just you just assumed it. And now they're almost all gone just, just in the last 30, 40 years. It's just the way time works. It's a really fascinating thing. Uh, ben Harris, our good friend over in England, we're going to keep talking to him about England, about America, the special relationship, a little politics too, just because uh, he, he runs amongst the halls of parliament. So he's got all the good scuttlebutt. We'll touch in on that. We'll continue with our friend Ben Harris. His Independence Day edition of Hertel right after Ben Harris, our good friend over in the UK. Been talking just a little bit of history, uh, our shared countries on this Independence Day in America. Uh, you do work around Parliament and in the halls of mm -hmm. Parliament. Uh, so let's talk UK politics for just a second. Just an outside observer, we've been talking to our UK friends a lot lately because there's a lot of news on it. I'm just, I'm just going to make the general statement. It, on the outside looking in, uh, neither uh, Prime Minister Johnson nor the right honorable opposition in the form of uh, uh, Sir Keir Starmer and the Labour neither one of these individuals are exactly covering themselves in glory right now. This, this no. seems to be just kind of like 
y'all kind of muddling through a down period where it's like, well, Johnson's not great, but he's kind of Teflon and there's nobody else. So we're kind of stuck with him and Starmer's got his own problem. This kind of seems just like a little bit of malaise, this current period in uh, UK politics. Does it feel that way there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's not just, it's not just the leaders. I mean, to fair, he's a big improvement on Corbyn. I'll give him that, but he is, he's very much failing to inspire people. And that's of course, a lot of so many <laughs> Yeah, it is. And then Boris Johnson, of course, has so many personal issues. His problems aren't really uh, policy wise. They're, they're mainly just in, in getting things done in government because the government, it just feels so dysfunctional. And two, it's his personal life, which is, just keeps on intruding onto the job. Um, but it's not just that. It's also the, the MPs in general. There are a lot of MPs who it's becoming clear you know, should not be MPs. I mean, my boss is, is great. I always, I always pick up for him. He's been, a, he's been an excellent boss. But there are lots of MPs who they just, you know, with all the scandals we've had recently, both sides, they're just not a, not a cut for it. And they just, all they seem to do is just focus on, you know, their, their sort of pointless social media stuff. And, you know, they're, um, they'll get up in the chamber and they'll give us, they'll give a speech about something. They'll just blare out loads of inaccuracies. And they get on scare. It's just for social media. It's not actually for anything else. Yeah, this is, it's interesting. We're talking about cross-cultural stuff. We got the same problem here. I, we just had our buddy Eric Garcia on who covers uh, Congress for the independent of all things. Um, and he talks about it and we talked about it on the show. It's like, you know, there's basically two kinds of, of Congress people and U.S. senators here because we have a bicameral house. House of Lords is a different beast for y'all. So basically yeah. it's parliament. Um, you have two kinds of people. You have the people that are there and they do the show and they do the the fundraising. And then you have a very small cadre of people who actually do the deals and know people and get things done and make the deals and move legislation. It's interesting that you're saying that because we have the same problem here is kind of the the media superstar Congress people. When you talk to the reporters and when legislation goes through and you start looking at the headlines of who actually wrote it, mm. it's almost it's almost always two different sets of people. And we've seen that here, too. I think it's social media because we have the social media superstars who play the public media part of politics and then you still got the old school ones who go and they actually do the job it's funny it just seems to be universal in uh, parliamentary politics doesn't it well what would say actually is that i think uh it, that doesn't have as much effectiveness of how how systems work i know that in the u.s um party sort of the party line is knowing they're as strong as it is here here you, you know if you're an mp you've got to work with the government on most pretty much everything and if you don't you know that, that you're in big trouble whereas i, I know that there uh, representatives and especially senators do get a bit more independence. So um, here it's, you know, they'll do the social media stuff, but they'll still work with the government anyway. So it's just, yeah, I don't, I don't think we, I don't think we, we get as much of a slowdown in government as you would there, but yeah, it does, it does slow things down. And it does prevent problems from being resolved. Yeah. It's interesting just how the systems work because there's good and bad to that, that we have weaker parties. You know, we all have a two-party system, but you got to remind people, it's like, yeah, yeah but it's there. It, it's a great example of this was I did, um, I was doing some British media uh, the, when the Uvalde shooting happened and they're interviewing you because they want the American and you have to just kind of slow walk them through. It's like, with something like gun legislation, which we passed something that was, you know, kind of a middling piece of legislation, but you have to slow walk a UK audience through it because it's so different. It's like, no, Congress can't just pass a law. It's not like parliament where with a few legal exceptions, pretty much whatever yeah. parliament says go like that's not how it works here like even if you got it through there's still judicial review there's still the executive branch. like you know congress can't just pass something that's a constitutional amendment through law and i'm just using that as the example of 
it's a whole different mindset when you have parliament. Something like Brexit could never happen in America because you'd never get it through and then it would be tied up in the Supreme Court for 30 years. And y'all got it done in a relatively short period. And you had it through in a relatively short period of time. It's just a very, very different system. Uh, yeah, it is. I and mean, obviously Brexit, we almost didn't get it through. I mean, that, that was that really did push it to the breaking point. I remember 2019, uh, 2018, sort of around that time, it was absolute chaos. Um, we had all sorts of norms being busted. And in fairness to Boris Johnson, he's not done much, yet, but he did manage to through. But if that was only done through an election, it was essentially some. But yeah, it's yeah, it, it can be easier to get things done because obviously we don't have the state government. I mean, counties here, which are equivalent to your state, counties are basically, they don't have much control over anything. Certainly, you can't have different abortion laws between counties, for example. Yeah, and that's going to be a mess for the rest of the year, but let's leave that for another day. All right, uh, Ben Harris, our good friend over in the UK. All right, uh, real quick, the minute we got left here, uh, let folks know where to follow you on social media, um, because I love following you, even though you hate garlic, which is you know a major <laughs> character flaw, but we'll deal with that another. But one, one quick story from you on why you love America so much, even though you are a Brit. You, and despite it all, you're a Baltimore Orioles fan for some odd reason I'll never understand. But let people know your social media and tell them just for our Independence Day why you love our America so very, very much. Oh, I don't know, really. I've always, I guess I've always consumed American culture since I was a kid, like most people do. Um, I think there's something about that more individualistic mindset that Americans have, which I really have always been drawn to. And you know, they say here, you know, everything is bigger in America, and there is just so much there uh, when it comes to when it comes to sort of the land, the people, it is, yeah, it's, a lot of Brits are quite um, bitter towards America, but I don't see it that way. I mean, the way I see it, someone's got to do, you know, the, the world, you know, if it's not us, then, you know, it's better than you guys than anyone else, so. And uh, speaking of which, we got to get you over here soon for a visit, my friend. Oh, I would love to. I'd love to come over. Uh, West Virginia's on my list. I'm, I plan to visit every state. I've done eight so far, I think, in my life, so plus DC. So, uh, yeah, I will visit West Virginia someday and North Carolina. I can guarantee you that. Yeah, it's a great place. We'll be happy to host you. Um, don't get a whole lot of Brits there, so you'll be a, you'll be very popular, I promise you. Uh, <laughs> ben Harris, our good friend over in the UK, uh, the special relationship, uh, our friends over in England from whence we came. Uh, it just took us two wars and a couple of years to forgive everybody about it, but we're good friends now. Ben Harris, thank you so much for your time today, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, it's been a minute since he's here, but he's back and we're thrilled to have him. Uh, Joshua Crawford, he's the executive director of the Pegasus Institute out in Louisville, Kentucky. Fine city that's had a lot of stuff going on. So public policy folks have been very, very busy right there in your own backyard, my friend. He's also an attorney, uh, talks a lot about things like criminal justice reform, societal reform. Going to talk a little fatherhood with him today, though. How are you, friend? Good to see you back. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. What got you on the fatherhood thing? It, 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 obviously, you're a son, so we all have our own th- thoughts about it. I got to assume reading through it and you're talking about some of your own memories and fishing with your dad and stuff like that. Did, which way did it start? Was it a fatherhood thing and you went back to your own father for that? Or was it your father and then you went to it, do you think, when you went to write about the subject? Yeah, my, my sort of thesis for the subject or really where I started was my dad and, you know, we, we did not have a tremendous amount uh, growing up. We were sort of 
lower working class and, and sometimes below that. But uh, my dad always sort of worked his butt off, uh, got up early in the morning, uh, got to work, got home late, but at the same time, always made it to football games and baseball games and stuff like that. And so now as a father myself, uh, I've spent a lot of time with, over the last year reflecting on what about my dad made me who I am and, and how I want to do those things. And I'm blessed to have sort of more resources than we did when I was a kid. And so how can I make sure that my kids don't grow up spoiled and stuff like that? But, but really thinking about my dad was, was where it all started. Yeah, Joshua Crawford joining us. The piece is called America Needs Dads More Than Ever. Of course, it was a Father's Day thing. We're kind of looping back to it because after the week we've all had, we need to talk about some building block stuff like this. I, I thought about it that way, too, because, you know, my own father, who we, we were the same way. My parents were both school teachers. We weren't rich or anything, but I didn't know it because we were, you know, pretty comfortable. I didn't realize a double wide wasn't supposed to be, you know, a prerogative. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a nice place to live. It didn't bother me one little bit. Um, I think of my own father's work ethic and how that's always uh, affected me. And it's something as I've gotten older, I'm 42 now, and, you know, I've got two adult children, two high school kids. It really seeps into my thinking the older I get of and I've learned it the hard way through mistakes I'm not going to pretend like I've been a great father you really start understanding how much of parenting is more modeling and more just stuff that they see than stuff that you you know you can sit down and say I'm going to do this and that you can't fool your kids man like they see everything you do and that model behavior is really where those thoughts of our own fathers and things like that that's what really gets imprinted more than like an idea or a concept or things that we may talk about to improve fatherhood, doesn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, one of the things that gets said uh, oftentimes is that you don't have to be a great dad to be a good dad, right? Uh, so much of it is is just showing up, just being there, just trying to do the right thing, um, just being able to to play, you know, man-to-man defense as opposed to, to having to go zone, so to speak. And so... Um, there's a lot about uh, my time. I'm sure I will reflect back later in life on, on my time as a dad and be like, oh, I wish I did that differently or I really wish I did that differently. Um, but the, the crux of the piece and, and the crux of the importance of having an involved father is really having somebody there uh, and having somebody who cares and, and can model some of that behavior. You touch on it in the piece. The numbers are kind of striking. Uh, 34% of kids in a single parent home, that's double since 68 83% of these homes, the parents has an absentee father of one shade or another that comes out to something like 18 million kids in homes without dad. I want to preface that with, there is nothing in the world I respect more than a single mother. So that's no, you know, dispersion on any right. of them because God bless them. Uh, yep. But those are, those are pretty shocking numbers when you start talking about raising children and the lack of children without a father, that kind of gets to the heart of the problem because this isn't like a policy solution where we're going to pass one law and it fixes it, or we set a regular, this is generational type stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. There, there are two major problems with fatherhood in America right now. The first is what you've hit on, which is that the trend is going the wrong direction. We are, we are having more and more kids in father absent homes, uh, not less. And, and that's a trajectory that's been pretty constant since the late 1960s. And the second is that uh, virtually every social ill that you can think of from teenage pregnancies to low academic achievement and including and especially public safety outcomes are negatively impacted by not having that 
father in the home. And to the point that you made, I mean, single moms do heroic work, but from a statistical standpoint, uh, kids who grow up in that environment are just much more likely to find themselves experiencing many, many social ills. And just speak to that on a practical level, because you are an attorney, you've been uh, a prosecutor. The criminal justice system is absolutely awash in, in kids. And I'm going to say kids because that's, that's where you lose them. We know statistically that 16 to 25 year age range when they first start bumping up into adult law enforcement, um, man, just almost all of them, some kind of a bad home environment type situation, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a a majority of street gang members come from single parent homes. Um, and even the sort of, uh, worst of the worst type offenses, when you think about like mass public shootings, uh, 75% of the, the 25 most recent high profile mass public shootings came from, from either father absent or abusive homes. Um, that's not to say that if you don't have a dad in the home, uh, sort of throw in the towel, everything is, is going to be bad. Um, it's just much more likely that things are going to be difficult and that you're going to find yourself uh, in a situation where in searching for that kind of familial situation, you find yourself either involved with a street gang or involved with a group of kids that you shouldn't be involved with. And so we can sort of cut the head off the snake with some of this stuff if we uh, we address it this way. You also wrote, though, that the good news to that is for as bad as it is for the kids that don't have, you know, good home situations, the data also says the reverse is true. And we also know now, you know, let's, you know, we just live in a society where the home structure is not as traditional as it used to be. It doesn't have to be that biological dad, you know, nuclear family thing. If you have strong parents in the home, the data is overwhelming, whatever form that takes, and it may take a non-traditional form, that sets a lot of these kids up on a path to success. And the statistics bear that out, don't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's there's the ideal here, right? And the ideal is two parents in the home, both involved in raising the kids, uh, so on and so forth. But there are then sort of shades of gray from there. And so if there's something about uh, a particular relationship that didn't allow for that relationship to flourish between a mom and a dad or, or parents otherwise, but the parent who's not in the home is meaningfully involved in that child's life in some way, if there are, you know, uncles or family friends or coaches or things like that who are involved in a kid's life in a meaningful way, all of that can can help offset some of that. Yeah. And let's talk about that for just a second, because, you know, again, you come from that background of criminal justice and you study that policy wise. There's a societal element to this because we say, well, there's not a father in the home. But I, I think back to my own childhood, like we had really strong elderly people around us all the time. Like, I mean, just really strong character, older folk. You can have family, community, um, civic organizations, churches, sports teams can do this. Uh, music teams can do this. I got a kid in band. It's like this. The band, you know, the band becomes their family. There can be, it's not an ideal situation, but society and community and family, they really can't stop gag some of this if there's those strong adult presences around these kids, isn't there? That's that's absolutely true. And one of the unfortunate things is that at the same time, this trend in fatherhood has persisted and we've seen more and more kids growing up in, in a house without a dad. You're seeing sort of these breakdown of some of these civic institutions. You're seeing church attendance uh, shrink. You're seeing uh, civic association uh, participation shrink, uh, things like Kiwanis clubs and, and stuff like that. Uh, you're seeing rotary clubs, you're seeing less and less attendance with, um, and you're seeing the sort of general breakdown of, of community to a certain extent. And so 
uh, one can certainly step in and, and help offset the other. But unfortunately, a lot of the trends in both of those things uh, are headed in the wrong direction. Yeah, Josh Crawford joining us. All right, here's the hard question, though. What do we do about it? We already touched on it a little bit. Is this a policy thing? Is this a societal thing? Is it a cultural thing? Uh, you know, parenting, from, from the way I understand it, the best on a lot of levels is, you know, fatherhood's a mentorship type thing. I don't know that you can really legislate that. I know we can do things to kind of put an environment around it. Is it all of the above? Is it none of the above? Is there shades in that? What do you think the actual solution on trying to improve this is other than just person to person trying to make this as best we can? Yeah, it's, it's all of the above. The, the first thing is to make sure that as a matter of public policy, we don't disincentivize fatherhood and marriage, right? There's some things that we do via welfare programs that, that encourage uh, single parenthood. Um, and <clears throat> what are the things that we, as a matter of public policy, can do proactively? Uh, one of the things that have been evaluated in sort of a comprehensive way are these sort of fatherhood programs for people who find themselves uh, in the criminal justice system as defendants. And uh, what the reviews have found is that when, when properly implemented, those programs can, can meaningfully uh, improve uh, participation in a kid's life, as well as things like welfare payments and stuff like that. So on the public policy side, there's all of that. But but the big thing here is that, that dads need to step up. It is a, a cultural and a social and a societal question. And part of that is if you've got a friend who's a dad who's not involved in that kid's life at all and, and you read this piece, then it behooves you to say like, hey man, like let's go see your kid or you know, like let's go to their baseball game or whatever. And part of it is just that sort of social pressure from friends. The, the, expectation, the expectation on moms uh, has always been like, you have to raise your kids, right? There seems to be this shift as it relates to dads of like, yeah, you got to provide some financial support, but there's no expectation that you're meaningfully involved. That has to change. How much is this is a generational shift right now? Because we, I'm a little bit generation gap because my, my mom was the youngest of nine kids and my parents didn't have me till their mid thirties. They're in their late mid seventies. Uh, my dad's 76 now. So I'm a little bit gender gapped for my age cohort on paper. But, you know, we talk about the boomers all the time, but that's a huge cohort that is starting to pass off the scene now. They're getting older. Generationally changed now. This new generation coming up, because I see it with my old kids, they're more online. They have wider friend networks due to technology. I think there's going to be a big generational change in how we look at parenting going forward. Do you see that, too, when you sit down and look at this like, hey, you know, the Andy Griffith opening where you're walking down the fishing pole that's probably an iPad kind of situation. Now, is there a generational thing going on here too, where some of us are all just going to have to adapt a little bit? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Whenever my wife got pregnant, um, I bought a tremendous number of books <laughs> on parenting. And, you know, there's a, a number of uh, the sort of like standard, you know, do's and don'ts and milestones and all that kind of stuff. But I was I was sort of blown away by the number of books that deal specifically with this question of like kids and technology. Because, so I'm, I'm 32. I largely grew up in an era of cell phones and the internet and stuff like that. But it wasn't really until high school that that was pervasive for me. Well, when my daughter is, I mean, daughter now, I mean, if, if, if she wants to access the internet and things like that via cell phone, I mean, she's, she's 14 months, you can't do it competently, but uh, that technology is all around her. And so there's a, a wide array of books uh, and sort of prognostications on how you 
interact with your kids with those things and the the sort of double-edged sword of those things, right? They can be a, a way to let that iPad parent for you, which is a, a huge mistake, or it could be the kind of thing that we do. My parents live in Massachusetts, and so we can uh, FaceTime on the iPad with my daughter and my parents, and they can see each other in a way that they normally wouldn't. And so that is definitely changing the game. Yeah. The one that will get a lot of parents and they got me is when your teenagers start Google fact checking, whatever you say right on the spot, that's a fun time to get to, but just the world we live in now, they can look it up immediately. Uh, Joshua Crawford joining us. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to put his lawyer hat back on uh, criminal justice reform. A lot of stuff going on. We're going to update since the last time he's been here. There's been a lot of stuff going on in his hometown, Louisville, Kentucky. We're going to get an update on that. Some of the things he's been talking about, some of the things they're working on at the Pegasus Institute. Joshua Crawford joining us again right after the break on her. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Really sharp guy. We always enjoy having him on the program, Joshua Crawford. Okay, last time we talked to you, you were dealing with a lot of stuff going on in Louisville. Uh, just update us real quick because people know some of the headline splashy stuff. You live there, so when the national news comes and they leave after a week or so, you're still in that community. What's going on in Louisville since all that splashy stuff over the last two years? Just kind of update us a little bit on what your city's doing and how y'all doing. And it, did we get anything from all the noise or is it still the same old problems? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, Louisville since 2015 has seen uh, pretty substantial increases in its homicides um, and non-fatal shootings. A lot of that is, is gang and street group related. That was sort of put on steroids uh, over the last two years. Uh, but the particularly concerning thing is that Louisville, like a number of other large cities across the country, has experienced a giant surge in carjackings in the last two years. Uh, our carjackings have gone up uh, 206% uh, 2018 to 2020. Again, a lot of that is is uh, gang and street group related. But what is particularly difficult uh, from a public policy standpoint and from a societal standpoint is 51% of the arrestees for carjacking in Louisville are juveniles. They're kids under 18. Uh, and of that percentage of juveniles, uh, nearly a quarter of them are 14 and younger. So you've got kids that can't even legally drive, can't get a driver's license if they wanted to, putting a gun in somebody's chest and stealing their car. And so that's a big part of, of what we're dealing with right now. I am a, a part of the, the governance committee for the group violence intervention project that is going on here. Uh, I think that that has been a positive development for the city and has frankly kept things from being worse than they were. Uh, it sort of moves law enforcement resources to the worst of the worst, to, to the people that you want those things focused on. Um, and I'm hopeful that as we continue that effort, we'll, uh, we'll see some improvement. You've been doing a lot of media about this, uh, Joshua Crawford joining us. So let's just cut down through it because here, here's the problem. We have the social media and news media talking head side of uh, politics and criminal justice where it's always scream about crime because that gets votes and that gets money and you send money to. We understand that there's that side of all this. But you've been talking about in a lot of media interviews lately about what's really causing violent crime. It, you're never going to get separated because of human nature, because we just know violent crime is always going to have a spotlight on it. It's like you point at that and then, oh, that's what's wrong. 
where's this actually coming from? Because, you know, we have economic unconcerns. We have all other things going on. There doesn't seem to be one real cause here. So where's this current wave of violent crime coming from? And how much of it is kind of social media, news media, just being able to hone in on this every time it happens now? Yeah, so um, the American people generally will answer the question, is crime increasing in the affirmative, whether crime is increasing or decreasing? Uh, unfortunately, though, over the last several years, when they answer that in the affirmative, they have been correct because uh, crime, especially violent crime, especially the most serious violent crimes, uh, again, murders, shootings, carjackings, things like that, have been increasing uh, uh, quite considerably. And so uh, there's a, a truism there, but, but crime concentrates among a remarkably small percentage of your population. Typically, it's about a half a percent of a city's population that's responsible for about 50% of its violence. Uh, typically, it's about 5% of offenders that are responsible for 50% of your violence. And so it concentrates among a very small group. It tends to be those, those individuals uh, committing crimes against each other within the subcontext of criminal street gangs. What makes the serious violence so tragic is far too often it spills out uh, uh, against innocent bystanders. I mean, here in the city of Louisville, we've had a three-year-old girl executed in broad daylight. We've had a seven-year-old boy shot and killed while sitting at his kitchen table. Uh, we routinely have, have children who end up caught in the crossfire of this. And so there, there is the sort of proverbial, if it bleeds, it leads truism of the news media uh, but unfortunately, we're living through a time period where that is is oftentimes reflecting a reality. And since you just mentioned it, let's talk about that for a second, because like you said, crime is actually a very small criminal, I should say. That's a very small percentage of the population. But how we deal with that small part of the population has a tremendous ripple effect on the rest of society. I know we talk about that in the context of criminal justice or criminal law reform, but just kind of break that down for folks a little bit. It's like, because we just see the headlines and then everybody just wants to sledgehammer the bad guy. And we all get that because there's some truly mm -hmm. horrible people out there. But we also got all the data in the world of just pouring money and punishing everybody. That's not enough, is it? And then when we have waves like this, how do we talk about this in a productive way where we keep our own humanity? We understand that even though we're dealing with bad people, we're still dealing with people. And we actually get some traction instead of just repeating the same cycle over and over again. I know that's a way too big of a question for one answer, but just kind of give us kind of a building block there, because that's really gets to the heart of some of the stuff you guys work on, isn't it? Yeah, the, the answer there is to concentrate resources among your problem populations, right? That's true of law enforcement resources. It's true of social service resources. It's true in, in questions of criminal sentencing, right? Like um, we generally know. Uh, the categories of people that commit these serious offenses in large numbers. They tend to be habitual repeat offenders. Um, they tend to, to escalate their behavior. And again, a lot of it happens within the subcontext of, of criminal street gangs. And so adopting policing practices that reflect that, adopting sentencing practices that reflect that, because you know, you can have a guy walk into a courtroom who deserves to spend the rest of his life in prison and the very next person who is charged with uh, a different but likewise serious offense who that's not the best disposition for that person. The system has to be nimble enough to address those things. And so if you have sort of broad sweeping mandatory minimums for things, you're going to have some problems with that. But at the same time, making sure that, that law enforcement and prosecutors have the tools needed to to say that is a person who's wreaking havoc in a community and that's the kind of person that we build prisons for and making sure that, that person spends uh, the time that they need there. And the other edge of that two-edged sword, though, is 
the prosecutors and the law enforcement, uh, they need to be held accountable and be the best they can be. We've seen the example, of course, in Uvalde lately. We just saw mm -hmm. uh, up in Flint, Michigan, where the prosecution of the uh, Flint water crisis got uh, thrown out for an overexertion of authority. Those two things have to go together because every case we see, if you don't have police and the prosecutors at their very best, you're not going to be able to do anything about the very worst of society at the same time because it's, it's, it just makes the mess worse. How do we talk about that in a context of, of course, we want to support good police because good police wants to get rid of bad police, every single one of them without exception. Mm -hmm. How do we hold accountable and get the best out of our public servant side of that instead of just always screaming and pointing at the bad people? Because you got to have both, don't you? Yeah, the, the question is a little bit easier for law enforcement than it is for prosecutors, but I'll address both. Um, interestingly, much like crime in the general population concentrates among a small number of individuals, police misconduct tends to concentrate very highly among a small number of individuals. And so making sure that those individuals are both uh, appropriately reprimanded and then that, that they can't just simply leave a department or be fired from a department and go to another department. That's one of the things that has happened here in Kentucky. If you are uh, essentially fired for misconduct, you now lose your POP certification. And so you can't go be a law enforcement officer anywhere else in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Uh, so that's a positive step forward to hold accountable those individuals who are uh, engaging in, in misconduct. Um, for prosecutors, it's a little bit tougher because uh, the United States Supreme Court gives prosecutors very wide discretion in how they charge, what they charge, what they don't charge. Um, and so what really has to happen in order to hold a prosecutor accountable is for there to be some sort of gross misconduct. Uh, the, the best example of this, which is no longer really a contemporary example, was the, the Duke lacrosse prosecution. Uh, the, that prosecutor was, was held accountable for what was the, just sort of a blatant disregard for evidence of, of being disregard for the truth a crusade against some some factually innocent individuals. And so there are ways to hold prosecutors accountable in those circumstances. But generally speaking, prosecutors are given pretty wide discretion on on how they charge uh, and if they choose to charge versus not. Yeah. And if you've never seen the ESPN 30 for 30 on on Will Fork and the Duke lacrosse case, I know it's a sports related show. You know, the, the lawyers always joke like, well, it's never like the movies. You never have the cross-examination that blows up the case. That one, they really had it. And it was actually a young, untrained lawyer that just unraveled him on the scan. It's an amazing thing. Please go watch it because uh, you will learn very quickly about that case. And there's a lot of implications there. Joshua Crawford joining us real quick. A few minutes we got left. Let folks know what the Pegasus Institute is doing. Uh, we've had you on before. You guys do such good work. Uh, let them know, just kind of dovetail what you're doing with the Pegasus Institute. You're getting a lot of national attention. I know you just talked to Representative Crenshaw here recently. Uh, just update folks on that so they know what it is you're spending a lot of your time on because you're doing some really, really good work, sir. Yes. Oh, I appreciate that. So we're headquartered in Louisville. And for much of our history, we have been primarily focused on state of Kentucky issues, some federal issues and city of Louisville issues, but we've always sort of had that like urban focus, that urban bend to what we do. But because we're located in Kentucky and because uh, the counties in Appalachian, Kentucky are, are sort of so economically depressed and so underserved in, in many ways, we have, I wouldn't say shifted our focus, but we are giving that a lot more attention here right now. And so we have a paper that is gonna be released in the near term on uh, economic development in Appalachia and, and frankly, the lack of economic development in Appalachia since President Johnson's war on poverty. 
uh, a lot of the things that haven't worked there. So that's something for folks to look out for. And in that same vein, uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, a number of weeks ago now uh, printed a piece on uh, something that has really gone sort of unnoticed in the last couple of years, and that has been the increase in violence in rural communities. Uh, a lot of the attention is focused on our urban centers, 30% increase in homicides in American cities, uh, 2019 to 2020. But what the Wall Street Journal analysis found was that there was a 25% increase in homicides in rural communities over that time period. And so we're taking a look at rural communities in Kentucky to see if that trend holds true here uh, and look at some of the reasons that that may be the case. Hey, I'm a West Virginia kid. You don't have to convince me about it. Uh, we have an absolute epidemic with opioids and violence going on right now. And we, we just talked about it with the, uh, the CPS system in West Virginia is so broken right now. They can't even take kids. They had a scandal where they were shipping them off to Pennsylvania, lost track of a guy I grew up with, um, played pickup basketball with Winston Church with. He's a sitting circuit judge now. And I was eating with him and he just kind of shook his head. He, he'd just been on the job like three months. He just shook his head. He's like, I have one case that's mom and the next case is the dad. And I got to send them both away. Now, what do I do? And I know mm -hmm. CPS is shot. You know, this stuff. When you do that, let me know. We will put you on. We will talk about that because that's that's something that's near and dear to me. So I appreciate y'all looking at that um, wide ranging problem. That's not there. You go again. That's I fear that's going to be one of them generational type problems, my friend. It's it. This is mm -hmm. not going to be a policy fix. This is going to take an all of the above, and it's going to take decades, probably, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way that some of these communities have been ravaged by drugs and especially in the era of fentanyl with overdose deaths now um, and <clears throat> new meth, which is old meth, which is sort of a, a lengthy conversation. But the, the methamphetamine that people are using today is, is not the methamphetamine of the 1990s. Uh, it's a it's a chemically different substance. It's a more addictive substance. And it's a substance that can do, in some cases, irreparable damage to your brain. And so it's the the environment is is very difficult to to fix some of this stuff. And we'll, somewhere in there, we'll have you on and we'll talk something light too, I promise. But uh, Joshua Crawford, always enjoy the conversation, my friend. Uh, we will definitely be having you back uh, until we get you back on the show. Though, let folks know about your social media and what you're doing so they can follow you between now and then. Yeah, so uh, the website is PegasusKentucky.org, Kentucky spelled all the way out. Um, and then, you know, wherever you do your social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm not personally on Twitter, but the organization is. And so you can find all of our stuff there. Yep. And we got it right there on the lower third graphic. And we will link to all this in the show notes, his piece in National Review on Fatherhood. Please watch, read it. That's a good one to share off with folks, too. Joshua Crawford, sir, always a pleasure talking to you. Look forward to doing it again real, real soon, my friend. Thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. Okay, we're going to go to Huntington, West Virginia, uh, the opioid crisis in West Virginia, a local reporter with the Herald Dispatch in Huntington, West Virginia, Courtney Hessler. How are you, ma'am? Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Let's start bigger picture, though, because these things, what happens is we start talking data and we start talking buzzwords and we start talking stereotypes and everybody kind of loses perspective of what's going on. Tell people who don't know, I've lived and worked there, you're from there. Talk about the people and the city of Huntington and kind of put a human face on it for me. Well, you know, Huntington, your listeners probably know us best. Like it's where Marshall University is located. Marshall 
and it's it's kind of a saying that is getting old, but uh, Huntington lives and dies with Marshall University. That's the center of it. You know, um, your listeners have probably heard of it from We Are Marshall, the major motion picture. Um, but Huntington was built on the Ohio River. It's an industrial town, or it was, and as uh, those jobs declined, so has our population, and we're kind of um, seeing an effect from that. Um, West Virginia has a history of really hard-hitting jobs, labor jobs, and um, because we work hard, our body hurts more, and because of that, you know, um, we've had to turn to uh, medical help, and that's all started with opioids being prescribed, you know, it, it goes back to the Slackler family and Purdue Pharma and their promotion of opioids. And about 2007, a flood just started is how people are describing it, of opioids being sent into our area. Over a seven year period, seven or eight years, Huntington received uh, about 80 million pills from just three opioid distribution companies, uh, Amerisource, Morgan, McKesson, and uh, Cardinal Health. And that rage, the flood just continued to increase until 2012 when the DEA really caught on and, you know, the regulation belts were tightened more and the drastic increase to their legal doctor prescriptions uh, to turn to illicit drugs on the street. And, you know, that was 2012, we're 10 years later, and we're still suffering. Overdoses continue to rise each year. We did get some headway before the uh, crisis started, the pandemic started. But um, because the pandemic cut off so many connections, personal connections that have been made to get people the help that they needed, uh, that really just caused it to aggravate again. So we're sitting here today and our people are suffering, our people are still dying, and we really just have no end in sight. What was it about this particular area? Because like you said, there was other parts of the country down in the coal fields. I know Oceana was a hot spot for this where you got, I forget, mm-hmm. someone got, you know, you have a town of two, 3,000 people and they had hundreds of thousands of these pills thrown in there. Yeah. Was there a particular reason for this area that ever came out, either in the trial or in the supposition or just in the, some of the reporting y'all have done? Why Huntington? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a smaller right. size city. You know, is there a specific reason why? I know you went through the background of West Virginia. And yeah. Some of that comes from kind of the mining and the mill. Pro- there's, there's an old huge steel producing area there between there and neighboring Asheville to right. Kentucky. Um, why Huntington, though? What made this such an epicenter for all of this? it's so multifaceted like it's it's ridiculous you could uh, account for anything but one thing that really stuck out to me in the complaint that the city of Huntington and Cabell County had filed against uh, the opioid firms one line really stuck out to me and I can't remember the specific number but it was about the marketing practices of Purdue Pharma uh, and um, you know, their uh, marketing consulting company, McKinsley, and it was something like the Huntington and Cabell County area received like, it was like 30 times the amount of marketing that other areas received. So for every dollar that 
was going into opioid marketing in other communities. In our area, it was like 30 times that. And I really think that that's what it goes back to. So the theory on this was it got kind of interesting and got the national attention. What you've been reporting on for the last few years yeah. is Huntington and Cabell County, which Huntington's in Cabell County, it's by far the majority of the population. They decided to kind of do this novel thing where they went out on their own and went to court against the pharmacy companies, the big three pharma, they call them. What was the thought process for there? I know the model was kind of the tobacco settlements of, of years past, but locally, what was the thought process of they going, hey, we're going to go this alone and try this novel approach? Well, you know, for Huntington and Cabell County, I, I've really come to the term like uh, Cabell County and Huntington kind of walked. So the 2,500 plaintiff cities and counties who have joined in similar claims nationally could run. So they were on the forefront. They were one of the first uh, lawsuits that were ever filed. Uh, and I think it, it all comes back to um, a local attorney called, his name's Paul T. Farrell Jr. His dad's a circuit court judge here too. And he just had this notion that he was sick of it and he wanted to do something about it. And he might be one of the smartest people that I ever know. Like I, I, I can barely comprehend his mind or his thought processes. It's brilliant, but he was sick of it. He knew his town and his, his hometown was hurting and he wanted to do something to fix it. And we just got lucky enough that he's from here and this is where it, he wanted to start his journey. Yeah. Courtney Hessler from Huntington joining us, a reporter, fine journalist. Make sure you're following her. Her information's on the lower third there. And we're going to link to these pieces in the show notes. Okay, they took it to trial, the big three pharma. Uh, this has been a long, arduous process. There's multiple, I don't want to call them side cases, but when you have a case as big, people yeah. join it. Some parts of it have been split off. There's been some uh, judicial review things where they've had to split it off into different cases. But over the 4th of July weekend, we had kind of a big deal ruling that got a lot of attention, might have got lost to some folks because of the holiday. Just walk it through us for a minute, though, because one of the major pieces of what they were shooting for here, uh, the judge basically struck down. Yeah. So last year, uh, Huntington and Cabell County became the first to go to trial in those 2,500 cases or so uh, against the distributors in federal court. It lasted all through last summer. It was months long. Um, and every single detail about how the opioid epidemic started and how it got to where it is today was shared and it ended in the end of July and we hadn't heard anything since and the judge late 4th of July he dropped the opinion on it that essentially ruled against the plaintiffs in every single aspect that they had claimed they claimed that the uh, distributors had blindly just shipped pills in without doing their due diligence to check records, pharmacy records, um, that they promoted this, that they encouraged it. They just turned a blind eye because they were going to prof be profiting off of it. And um, the judge just disagreed with them completely. He, he said, you know, it's really sad that our state's facing this, that the country's facing this, but the law, the public nuisance law does not protect uh, us from that. 
we talk about, I know the mayor said that when this ruling came out, that this was, um, this was a blow to accountability. That's the word he used. Yes. Um, this is such a big problem though. I know they want the, the fiscal restitution because, you know, obviously that would be a major amount of money and Huntington, unlike some other areas, they actually have infrastructure in place that this money could get put in the right hands immediately, which is often the problem in other places. Like, well, you send them, who do you send the money to? There's nowhere. That's not Huntington. If people just watch the documentary, they have the drug courts going, they have the second chance programs. They could use this money in an effective way because they're a major city, but isn't the bigger piece of that besides the money, um, they just wanted on paper what was done to them. You're there, you're in that community, you've had this affect you on a personal level. It's part of the West Virginia mythology of those of us that grew up there, we're always kind of the underdogs and the mistreated. Isn't a lot of this just getting it on paper somewhere of like, look, we have to listen to all these pillbilly jokes. This was done (laughs) to us. This wasn't something we chose and we want it on paper and we want it on the record for posterity. You know, uh, you said accountability and that's a big, part of this case, you know, one of the most heartbreaking parts of the trial for me last year was whenever um, they revealed emails from CEOs of these companies who were, uh, you know, rewriting the Beverly Hillbillies uh, theme song to include Pillbillies about like West Appalachians, like going down the Pillbilly Highway to um, Florida to get prescriptions for pills and and just jokes like that. And to see somebody that's making millions of dollars a year sit there while Appalachians are dying is just heartbreaking for me. You know, you're from here, you know, Appalachians have a long, long history of being exploited. And this is just another blow to that. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, Courtney Hessler joining us. She is from the Herald Dispatch in Huntington, West Virginia, great local reporter talking about the court cases, the opioid crisis, putting a familiar face and name to it. We're going to talk more about that pillbilly thing in just a second. Also, we're going to go through some of the stereotypes. Even though this court case got complicated and they didn't get the financial, there's some really important information that came out in this case. Yeah. We're going to detail that with her. We're going to take a quick break for turn, continue with her on her tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell, an important conversation, one near and dear to my own heart. Uh, y'all know how West Virginia I am. It's right behind me every single episode. I'm actually wearing the shirt today. I apologize to her, though, because she's a Marshall girl. Uh, so, we'll, But, hey, same team for this one. Like, As long as they're not right. playing each other, we, we, we try to pull for each other, um, especially now that Coastal Carolina is going to be up there more often. We'll be doing that. Uh, Courtney Hessler joining us from the Herald Dispatch in Huntington, West Virginia. Great local reporter. Please follow her work. Let's start right back up with that pillbilly thing, because when that happened, I wrote about it because that that got me hard. And the way I opened my piece on it was like, okay, I thought I'd heard every West Virginia joke there was. And you got to remember when I went to basic training for the Air Force, they called room to attention to give me my first pair of shoes and all that. And, you know, (laughs) second cousins and it's a toothbrush instead of a teeth. brush. I thought I'd heard it all until this pillbilly thing. Boy, that one cut. Um, was it the same for you when you heard these? And there was a lot more to that. They actually, th- that was not like a one liner. It was a theme. 
uh, break that down and how that was received in the community. Well, um, it was definitely one of my most read stories. That's for sure. I remember I got the email the day before my best friend's wedding and I was the matron of honor and I'm like well well this might be a little bit more important to work on right now but um it's jokes that we we kind of make among ourselves but when someone a big old CEO is sitting in his office and sending emails back and forth or whatever it's just like you can't make jokes like that you haven't lived the pain and suffering that we have lived it's not funny I see, I grew up around opioid abuse um, and mental health issues, and I have PTSD from it that still affects me every day. So hearing and seeing that email is, it's just, it still like irks me to my core today. And I know the defendants were found not liable in this uh, certain instance, but it's things like that that are I just think make the trial so important to have happened still. Yeah. I was talking to our friend, Dr. Keith Humphreys and the way he phrased it um, when it comes to the money is the money is essential, but it's not standalone. And when you're talking about the stereotypes, yeah, it's ha ha funny stuff. But in this particular case, when you're trying to get funding for things, when you're trying to put a human face on things to raise awareness, to get funding at the federal level and the state level and from the charity folks and all this, those stereotypes are, are it's not an exaggeration. Those stereotypes can kill people yes. because it dehumanizes. And once you start dehumanizing now, it's, well, it's just an addict laying over there. What do we care? And it's not, no, that's a family member. And these are little, you can talk about this in yeah. Huntington, especially people that watch the documentary on the drug courts. An addict is not just hurting themselves. These are bombs that go off in families and communities and cities and principalities that absolutely have a blast radius. And those stereotypes make that blast radius worse. I think it's important to note, too, that these are the voices that were left out of the trial. The judge didn't hear from any um, any personal stories from family or somebody who is suffering from substance use disorder. And I think I'm not sure if that would have changed his opinion any, but these people want their voices to be heard. And in this instance, in, in the settlement with uh, Purdue Pharma that's being worked on right now, it's just continuous that these personal stories are being left out of the courtroom. I understand legally why they have to do things like that. Um, but when you did the reporting on this, when you talked to lawyers, when you talked to the, yeah. the people that have actually been in the courtroom for this thing, were they surprised by this? Was it kind of out of nowhere? Some people are reading into the fact that he did this over the 4th of July weekend because obviously, you know, the publicity yeah. on this was going to be hot. What was the overall reaction from the people, you know, not just the public, the legal people, the folks that actually know how these things go? Well, I can't get any of the attorneys to talk to me. <laughs> so um, I think that's because they have confidentiality, um, contracts signed and all that. But I do know that in my discussions with them over the last year, they've all been feeling positive about it. They felt like it was going to be a great outcome for them. They weren't sure what the amount of money was going to be, but they really felt like they left it all on the table. Now, I don't think, you know, any good attorney is knows that nothing is for certain. Um, so they had to think that this was a possibility to have happened. But I don't think that any of the attorneys I've talked to um, felt like there was any more that they could have presented to the judge. 
Yeah, now that's the criminal trial, or the, excuse me, the civil trial. That's the legal side of this. You brought up something in your tweeting as you were kind of summarizing the last few days yeah. as you processed all this. You have to talk about the government side of this. We've talked about the community. We've talked about the legal part of this. Where's the state and local government fall into this? Because, again, it's not accidental this happens in West Virginia. What has their role been in this crisis? Well, um, you know, our state attorney general, Patrick Morrissey, has his own cases going. Um, it's so complex. It's really hard to break down into a single podcast, you know, but uh, he had there's several other cases that were supposed to go to trial. All the state, all, all the cases filed in state court against the distributors was set to go to trial Tuesday. And uh, because of the ruling coming out on the 4th of July, they decided to meet Tuesday and just push back those cases indefinitely. There has been talks that a settlement is in the works, but again, I can't get any of the attorneys to uh, tell me if that's happening or not. So I'd hate to confirm that, but um, in the end, Cabell County and Huntington will still get nothing out of that, but um, it could be a big windfall for the state. Um, they, they have our Attorney General Morrissey is uh, working on setting up a fund through the state legislature that will describe where all this opioid settlement money will uh, have to go in the future. And that way, like back in the 90s, when there was the tobacco settlement that went to it was a, a very large settlement that was supposed to help people uh, stop smoking cigarettes. It went to fix roads or infrastructure issues. So at least we have something like this in place that will make sure that the opioid money goes toward actually helping people with substance use disorder and their families. The other part of this was that even though this may not be the successful conclusion to some of these court cases, a lot of folks think the information that has come out of this, yes. there's other uh, defendants and plaintiffs, yes. there's going to be more cases. We already talked about this has kind of been a, a shattering windshield thing where we chipped it and now there's all these branches going all the yeah. A lot of the experts studying this think the information that has come out yes. of this is actually going to lead to more going forward. Talk about that for a minute. You talked about it as well. Um, this is not the end. This is more the, be the end of the middle of the beginning, isn't it? Yeah, so there's so much information that came out of this trial that we would have never known if it wouldn't have take, taken place. And for the Pillbillies emails that we uh, have already talked about, um, just all the details, hearing an expert, I feel like I could have another college degree just by all the information I heard. Um, it, all, it helped me heal too, just from um, being around this my entire life and hearing, you know, it's not necessarily my, um, I care to be determined for her, but also um, the Herald Dispatch, the HD Media, who owns us, and the Washington Post found out that the DEA keeps a database of all the pills that are being shipped to various places from the time that they're created and um, until the time that you ingest it. And so, that data was turned over as part of this lawsuit, and we were able to fight in federal court to get that information released. The Washington Post has a great database of it. If you just uh, Google where did the pills go, Washington Post, you'll be able to find it. But um, 
we fought for that information to be released. And it really showed the details of the pills that just flooded into our communities. And we wouldn't have been able to find that and get that information to the public without this case. Yeah. Courtney Hessler joining us from Huntington, West Virginia. Great local reporter. We'll link to that uh, in the notes as well so folks can find that. Let's let's round back to where we started. Um, again, these things get lost really quick in legal terminology. They get lost quickly in stats and stereotypes and buzzwords. Let's go back to that personal face of this. You, you've made no bones in your public media and your writing, how personal this gets for you. Uh, let's not even pretend there's not bias here because you, there's no way you can't be because you live here. Yes. Um, start there and kind of round this out that, yes, this phase of it's over, but I know it's disappointing. You've talked openly about your disappointment with how that goes. Where does it go from here? Because like you said, Huntington, you know, the, the documentary, if people haven't watched yeah. it, we'll link to that as well. They've got some innovative stuff going on. They're having funding problems. It's not getting any better, but they seem to be able to at least start figuring out how they're going to fight this going forward. Give us some positives out of kind of this dark tunnel we're in right now. Well, Huntington and Cabell County have a $2.6 billion, that's billion, dollar plan to abate the entire opioid crisis in our community within 15 years, which that seems like a long time, but the plan is so thorough and so well thought out. It's made by all so many different parties in our community that it's exciting to think that we have an answer of how to fix it. We just have to figure out where is that money coming from. And so whenever Huntington and Cabell County filed this lawsuit, it didn't just include the distributors. Huntington and Cabell County were kind of a guinea pig to go to trial against the distributors first and for the rest of the 2,500 or so uh, lawsuits that were filed. And we, we know how that worked out. So now the next step, of course, they're going to appeal this and see what they can do in a higher court. But they still have lawsuits pending against doctors who prescribe the medicine, many of who, who have died already. They have lawsuits against uh, manufacturers, uh, pharmacies, and just everyone from the bottom up um, who was involved with starting and fueling this crisis. Yeah. Courtney Hessler, great reporter. Um, let folks know where they can follow you. We're going to have you back on the show real soon with some of your other local reporters. Maybe we can talk some Marshall football when that goes down. Yeah. We're getting a new baseball stadium. That'll be kind of cool. Yeah, I'm really uh, excited long, about that. Yeah, long needed. And that that old CSX yard was an eyesore. <laughs> that was oh, kind yeah. of the dead spot when you drove past uh, the football stadium and tried to get the rest of the town. Uh, we'll get you back on. Until we have you yeah. back on the program, though, let folks know where they can follow you. Let them know where they can follow the paper and let them know where they can follow you on social media. Yeah, so I'm uh, really big on Twitter, and you can follow me at Hessler uh, HD on Twitter, or you can follow the newspaper at Herald Dispatch. So it's pretty simple, or HeraldDispatch.com. Yeah, they do good work. It's a very uh, interesting little corner of the country. Yeah. I enjoyed living there. Uh, Marshall's a great school. We we give it a little hard time when you. Uh, the, the old joke course is WVU was the state school, Marshall was the private school. It's a lot different now. Than right. Yeah. You know, the healthy, friendly, brotherly rivalry. Uh, nothing right. wrong with that. Uh, Courtney Hessler, thank you so much for the time today. I know it's a dark topic. Uh, sometime yeah. when you're writing on something uplifting, let us know. We'll make sure to get you on that and balance it yeah. out. But thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And I can't wait to be back. Yes, ma'am. Thank you.
Hi, welcome back to Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. It is July the 7th. That's a Thursday in the year of our Lord, 2022. And this is going to be a special edition of Heard Tell because we had breaking news overnight into the morning with the time difference. We've been covering the events over in the UK, Prime Minister Boris Johnson. We had a great discussion on yesterday's Heard Tell program with Albi Amincona about the situation going on. Well, it popped off. Apparently, there are reports now that Boris Johnson will be resigning. He's going to try to just resign from the party and stay on as prime minister until his replacement is named. Now, that's up in the air whether that's going to happen or not, or if they're going to push ahead with trying to force him out. So still a lot of pieces. So we're going to do review. We always talk about accountability on this show. We're going to do a little accountability ourselves. We're going to bring back three of our guests and how we here at Hertel have covered this. So you can listen and hear what we've said, what we've got right, what we've got wrong, how we covered it. And now that it's here, because we did some prognostication, how close did we do? Bill Balkett will be on the program. Albie Amankoa will be on the program. And the great Alice Watson-Brown will be on the program. All of these in the last few months as we've covered this story. Listen, make up your own mind, and we'll continue to cover it. Special edition, UK, Boris Johnson version of Heard Tell, right after this. Heard Tell, okay, it's been a minute. She hadn't been here since March. Thrilled to have her back, our friend from over in the UK. Alice Watson-Brown has returned to Heard Tell. How are you, ma'am? Glad to have you back. I'm really well, thank you. I'm fresh out of university. I finished my degree and uh, just kind of recover from it and have a good summer and just chill out, I think. Yeah, it's got to be a good feeling, doesn't it? Um, yeah. While we're on the subject, we talk about uh, people moving around the UK. Y'all got yourself a rail strike going on. Uh, for the American audience, because the culture is different, mass transit is a much bigger deal in the UK than it is here because we're such a much bigger country, more spread out. Uh, there's two sides to these things, of course. There's the practical side and there's the political side. Just give us both. Practically, what is this rail strike doing? And politically, what is happening with it? Well, practically, um, it's stopping millions of people from getting around the country and getting to work. And it is basically a protest in the context of inflation, cost of living, the fact that public sector workers in the UK haven't received a pay rise in line with this huge, you know, this the inflation crisis, uh, whilst MPs seem to have increased their pay rise around two grand, I think, uh, in the last two years. So there's that kind of inequality. And then politically, in the UK, the trade unions uh, say we're going to strike. We want the government to give us what we want. We want more rights for our workers. We want more pay for our workers. And it's it's basically trying to emotionally blackmail the government through, you know, emotive language in the way that, you know, it's workers versus, you know, the, the elite and the state. It's this you you can tell what their political motivation is. Um and it's incredibly disruptive, whether you support it or deny it. No one can say that it's not disruptive. Um, and what's interesting, though, is that people usually if you a rail strike pre-COVID um, would happen, people would be mad taking taxis everywhere. This, everyone would be walking to work, cycling to work. But now you walk through the streets and it's really empty because people have started working from home. And especially it's a really sunny week. People don't want to be going to the office. They'll just say, I'm just going to work from home. I mean, my family have done that. Um, so whether the effect it has is going to be as widespread and as sort of felt by the consumer this time is up for debate. Um, but 
the popularity of commuting by car and working from home, as I said, could well see passengers now just desert railways and never to return, especially given that you know they're not nationalized in the UK. So prices can really vary. Um, you can pay £200 to get a train to Edinburgh in Scotland when it's cheaper to fly there via Paris. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. And of course, the backdrop here is interesting. And the timing is really interesting because you have, you know, front page of the Times today, UK inflation hits 40 year high. Uh, Cost of living is dominating the headlines. It uh, dominated prime minister questions this morning. Uh, This is something that's affecting absolutely everybody. So the question, of course, is and I'm not against unions as a rule, but uh, strikes are about timing and strikes are about public sentiment. That's really what a strike is for everybody's hurting right now. This may not be the time to fly that flag of, hey, we want a little extra when these folks are probably doing just a little bit better than folks in the Midlands or in the outs parts of the country where, number one, this doesn't affect them as much. And number two is they're going to watch it on TV and go, what are they thinking? Everybody's hurting here. Is that fair or is that the common sentiment? I think there's, I think that is definitely one way of looking at it. And in a way you you could be right. However, I think they have timed it possibly quite well because there is everyone is hurting right now as you said and what better way to go up against the government and all this inflation and this this grievance than to support a very disruptive anti-government protest and it's not just the rail strikers the the rail workers and their, their strike teachers are threatening to strike nurses like nurses so all across the public sector there is this this you know they want to there's this impediment between the rulers and the workers. Um, But I suppose one way you could spin this, which a lot of people might disagree, is that this could be good for Prime Minister Johnson because it distracts himself, it distracts the press anyway, from anything to do with Partygate, anything to do with the latest palaver with his wife, Carrie Johnson, um, anything, any misdemeanors in his office that have really um, undermined uh, opinion of him spe- spe- specifically within the Conservative Party. Um, so maybe this could be a uniting factor for the Conservatives and, you know, take tension away from, you know, the leadership election and the vote of no confidence. It depends on how he handles it. And currently how he's handling it is ostracizing the leader of the opposition. So Sakir Starmer of the Labour Party and the Labour Party um it's the most interesting. I th- I personally think it's the most interesting party in in the UK. They are they used to be the parties of the trade unions. Their leadership elections, their internal structure used to be so heavily dominated by the trade unions uh, and and their leaders and how they could really choose which leader got elected and how much influence they had in in drafting policies. And Sakir Starmer hasn't said anything. He hasn't been clear about it and. The fact that he's not made a clear stand when his MPs are out there on the picket lines really speaks about the state of the Labour Party right now. So Johnson really could use this as it is as to his advantage to present a, you know, united conservative government. Let's talk about those Labour folks for a minute, because um, now I'm an American. So just go real slow and use small words. Explain this to me. Maybe when you put the U in Labour, it changes things. But we had a really interesting scene with the Labour Party 
where you have Keir Starmer and the leadership and the front bench telling the back bench that they shouldn't be seen on the picket lines. Now, I'm not exactly a labor supportive, but if you're the labor party and there's a labor strike, that seems like something that would be in your wheel. I I just kind of shook my head. I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. What what are they doing over there? (laughs) It's a symptom of a wider identity crisis within the Labour Party of this country. And I think social democracy in general, um, obviously, Labour had its great sort of decline and fall um, after, you know, Gordon Brown and and the the financial crisis when, you know, I I don't know if you know the term Keynesian economics um, in. Yeah. So that was sort of the alternative economic model to capitalism or, or, or neoliberalism and Keynesian sort of Keynesianism fell and sort of Tony Blair created this third way. And that obviously built a rift between the more traditional Labour supporters and Tony Blair also did try, didn't try to incorporate trade union influence into his party. He didn't um, redact the infamous policies of Mrs. Thatcher um, regarding their ability to strike. And since then, they've had no economic policy that can appeal in the way capitalism does. Um, And they've also got this legacy of just being bad with the economy. Um, They always have. They always seem to screw it up. Um, You know, you can't just tax and spend. People understand that now. Um, And there's as well as this now in this age of identity politics, there is this very common question now that I would say more right wing commentators always ask Labour MPs when they come on air, they go, can you define a woman? And most of them can't answer. Most of them can't answer. And that's driven away a lot of people. It's fundamentally a crisis of identity. This um, writer called Patrick Diamond has written far better than I can explain and in depth on this. So if you want to know more, do do look him up. He's he's very good at that, uh, explaining why. Yeah, it's a universal problem. We're having the same thing over here with our, you know, even inside our Democratic Party, which is our left yeah. party, you have the the center left, and then you have the social democratic wing that's yeah. getting more and more progressive. And they never the twain will meet, apparently, except when there's an election to be had. It's the same thing. And it's more social and economic stuff. It's kind of it's really interesting how universal it how much of this, since you brought it up, how much of this falls on Keir Starmer? Now, to be fair to the Labor Party, they've bounced back from the from the Corbyn years and the disaster that that was. They did decently well in the recent local elections. They did pretty well, especially in London, places like this. So it's not the house on fire. But at the same time, a lot of people are looking at all the problems Boris Johnson's having and then looking at their own side up front and going, man, we should we should be doing better than this against what Boris Johnson's doing. Uh, a lot of labor folks have been saying those sorts of things. Is that all far on Keir Starmer or is Boris Johnson just that Teflon? Where's the mix of those two meet? I think Sakir Starmer um, hasn't been a force of personality. He hasn't brought a spark or a fire um, to the way he speaks. He keeps missing open goals. There were so many to so many criticisms that he could have weaponized during covid um, and I think that was a big thing for his leadership. People didn't know what he stood for, apart from just saying, oh, this policy is too late or this policy is wrong without actually saying what he would bring to the table. Um, but you could argue that, um, you know, in this sort of economic situation, especially, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, a leader like that, a figurehead, who a motive, you know, po- populist figurehead could be 
what Labour would need to win an election. Not that I'm saying, you know, it, it would be it would be good, but I think he weaponized the anti-austerity narrative incredibly well. He mobilized the youth vote incredibly well. Um, and it doesn't look like Starmer really is doing that at the moment. Um, obviously, we're regarding the cost of living and things like that. He's not stirring the masses in the way that Labour can. And um, as we were going back to the identity crisis, this it's happened throughout Europe in their social democratic parties as well. And it's it's a trend. It's a very interesting trend to see, you know, since 2008, um, all these, yeah, these social democratic parties in the center left kind of fracturing. And then I, I suppose with you as well, you you have the Nancy Pelosi's and then you have the AOC's and um, they don't they don't necessarily mesh well, but one of them has to catch up with the other at some point. Yeah, Allison Watson Brown joining us. Okay, so just how big an issue is the cost of living crisis? It's obviously you know front page. It's obviously dominating social media. You're there, we're not though. Turn the noise down on the news and tell us just on a practical level. Is this what everybody in in Britain and the UK is talking about? Is it is this the dominant issue of the time right now for folks over there? Yes, it's gone from changing the way you go to a supermarket. Um, you know, I'm a student and notoriously I'm poor, right? And uh, my sort of £25 a week food budget was my big thing. Um, and it was my kind of, it was my shop. But now what I would have to do is just kind of fill my basket up with the essentials until I hit my my budget mark. And then I just couldn't buy any more because that was it, right? And uh, luckily, I'm in a position where, you know, I have, have a very good home life and my parents were able to help me out a little bit. Um, but there are a lot of people who aren't. However, right now, the weather's hot. People are happy. People can go out and they don't need to worry about heating their homes because families are choosing between putting the heater on and putting meals on the table, which is horrible. And it's not just that. It's it's petrol it's it's going places and if people can't afford to go out and buy their starbucks coffee because they have to save money or buy their you know buy their pastry on the way to work that means the workers in those cafes and in those restaurants are losing out as well it's a never ending cycle of of pretty much just depression um i suppose the news in some way is not doesn't necessarily over exaggerate this it's it's true you see it everywhere and it's, it's the supermarkets especially um are all competing on their um you know get save money on this on this deal on that deal um and there was this huge um huge story about the government were going to ban two for one or buy one get one free on ready meals in their tackle to you know in their aim to tackle child obesity and they uh decided not to go forward with that in the cost of living crisis because you know any food's food right you need to feed your kids and yeah some people don't have a choice and um you know uh it caused a lot of backlash but actually sadly that's what we've we it's come to um but yeah that that's from my perspective as a young person and even more annoyingly, um, I coming from London, you now have to pay like seven pounds fifty for a pint of lager, and it doesn't make going out that fun. Yeah, that's ten bucks for uh, those of you from Logan that aren't up on the uh, pound sterling conversion to U.S. Yeah. dollars. That's that's an expensive drink. 
uh, Alice Watson Brown. One last political question, and we're going to switch gears. Um, Boris Johnson, uh, he, he seems to just, oh, it's over. Oh, it's not over. Oh, it's over. It's not over. Now we had the Lord Gate thing. We've had the ethical stuff. We've had the, the carry stuff over the last week or so. Uh, but he doesn't seem like he's really going to be going anywhere. I know there's a, a little bit of election fatigue. There's no clear-cut replacement for him. Those factor in as well. He just keeps squiggling out of these tight spots and pressing on ahead. It, it's kind of remarkable to watch, really, isn't it? I think the last point that you said is probably the most influential of the fact why he's still there. There is no real alternative replacement to Boris Johnson. There's no real forefronter. I mean, there are whisperings about it. MPs, sort of red wall anti-lockdown MPs. So people like Steve Baker, who wanted to leave the lead the COVID recovery group, but their only political message is, you know, I was against lockdown. There's no kind of philosophy about them as there is with Boris Johnson. Um, and I think also Ukraine, he's been praised personally by Zelensky for, you know, our solidarity and our rate our help for them but he you know i guess he he just keeps seems to keep going and um whilst i've fallen out of love with him many many times um i i i would see no one else who i would vote for um but he doesn't boris johnson is a man who is desperate to be liked and if he left office he wouldn't leave office in a crisis he would leave because he, he wasn't elected, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. One of our UK friends kind of put it this way. He, cause I asked him how bad it, we, we knew the, we knew the party gate picture was eventually going to show up. Cause that's just the world we live in. And he, he kind of made it half joking, but it turned out too. He's like that, that view of him walking through Kiev outweighed that party gate picture. He's like, you yeah. watch and sure enough, it did. He was right. All right, Alice Watson Brown, we're going to switch gears. We've been banging on the Brits a little bit her turn she's going to take a shot at our government and specifically the fda we'll talk a little america with our friend alice watson brown over in the uk late of bristol but she's done with them now we'll be right back more her tell right after this. Okay, very excited about this guest. Been wanting to get him on for a few weeks, but he's a very in-demand, busy feller, but we're thrilled to have him with us. Another Young Voices contributor. This is a very smart man. Put him in your information rotation. I've really enjoyed listening to him, and I'm thrilled to talk to him and now call him a friend, Albie Amancona. How are you, sir? Thank you very much for joining us here on Hertel. Andrew, it's good to be here. I don't know whether to say good morning or good evening, but it, it's good to be on the show nonetheless. Yeah, as we're recording the afternoon in the U.S., uh, it's evening in London. It's been a very, very busy news day uh, for the U.K., so let's just start right there. We were going to talk about it anyway, but in the last few hours, uh, we've had some breaking news. Again, we're recording this, so if you're listening to this on Wednesday morning, uh, these things may have changed, but we've had some very high-profile resignations. For the American audience who doesn't understand what a chancellor of the Exeter is and these sorts of things, uh, these two gentlemen that resigned, how, who are they, first of all, in the government, and why is that a big deal that's kind of changed the narrative on this a little bit? 
So the two gentlemen that have resigned, I'll start with the health secretary because that's probably relatively easy for an international audience, but the health secretary is in charge of the NHS and healthcare for England, um, and then also social care as well uh, for England. As he essentially runs the NHS, was instrumental in the the sort of the, the, the response to COVID and a lot of the COVID regulations and the rules that came in place after Matt Hancock had to stand down last summer for the affair that he had with one of his advisors at the time. Um, so that's Sajid Javid, who was the health secretary. He was actually also previously home secretary and previously the chancellor. Um, and then he stood down, the, Sajid Javid stood down as chancellor and Rishi Sunak took over as chancellor. Um, and the chancellor of the Exchequer is essentially the person that is, in, that is in charge of the treasury, which is in charge of things like taxation, uh, things like government spending, um, and essentially has the purse strings of the United Kingdom. So two very powerful figures over the past two years in charge of the COVID policy um, and the COVID response. Yeah. And for the visual, if you watch Prime Minister questions on Wednesday morning, these the last couple of weeks, these are the two guys that sit right beside Boris Johnson. Uh, that's who they are uh, to the outside observer. Uh, when you're having crises and things like this, these are both ambitious men. Both of them have been named for you know a future in politics. What part of this is the current crisis? Because let, let's be adults here. They're not really learning anything about Boris Johnson. They don't already know. They know this man very intimately over a number of years. They've decided for their own self that they need to step away and separate from him. So how do we parse that out in the visuals of this and also in the politics of it? My personal view is, is that I think it is unlikely that either of these two gentlemen would end up as a, as a real serious contender um, for, for the leadership of the Conservatives, for the leadership of the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom. Sanjay Javid has actually already tried a few times and, and didn't get very far. And Rishi Sunak was involved in quite a serious um, tax scandal earlier on this year with his wife's non-dom status. She, was, she had a, a, basically a, a tax status that wasn't entirely in the United Kingdom. And because she is the daughter of a billionaire, that was a lot of money that she was saving. And that was seen as, as quite a big blow to any future leadership bids for Rishi Sunak. So I actually do think that these men have done this for moral reasons rather than to further their own careers. And in fact, in his resignation letter, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, acknowledged that this might actually be his last ministerial position. Does that give this heft? Because let's let's go to the guy who does have the job that this is all centered around, Boris Johnson. It's just been a drip, drip, drip this year. He ha he'll have a high moment, and then we have a personal crisis, usually some somewhat self-inflicted, let's just be honest. Um, he'll have a high point. He'll get out of a scandal, and then another scandal comes. Is this going to give more weight than the last one? Because we've done this Boris Johnson resignation watch before. We've done it a few times. The British press is treating this like it's a lot bigger deal and more imminent. You're there, we're not, you tell us. Does it feel like that to you that this is different this time? I would always be hesitant to predict the downfall of Joris, Boris Johnson. But this, to me, it does feel different because what all of the other... Uh, scandals were missing were these big cabinet resignations. And the Chancellor of the Exchequer is essentially the most important cabinet position after the Prime Minister and the Health Secretary, because of how important the National Health Service is in the United Kingdom, is also a very important cabinet position. To have both of those uh, resignations literally happen within minutes of each other, Andrew, they were announcing both of these resignations, is quite a big blow. But there is nothing constitutionally which forces a Prime Minister to resign. 
uh, after cabinet ministers uh, actually, you know, resigned themselves. So what some people are thinking is that he could hold on until the 1922 committee has its elections in a couple of weeks time. And what, what we think might happen with the 1922 committee, which is essentially like a trade union of the Conservative Party, is that that it could elect essentially a bunch of rebels to the executive who could change the rules on when leadership on when votes of confidence rather can happen um, and then it could usher in a vote of confidence before conservative party conference, conference in october yeah albie almond co join us break this down for the american audience or the international audience a little bit though because this is the parliamentary system so boris johnson is the leader of the party but he's also a member of the parliament so in order for him to go, if he's not going to resign on his own, which everybody close to Boris says that's his ultimate nightmare, he does not want to resign in disgrace. If he decides to fight this, there's a lot of process involved here because basically what you're doing is the party is trying to take itself back from him being the leader. This isn't like the American system with the president where you know we, we've never removed a president from office through impeachment. We've had him impeached but not convicted. This there's a lot of dirty uh, processes here that are kind of unclear and kind of uncharted territory, really, if he decides to really fight this, isn't it? Because if he doesn't want to go, it's going to be hard to make him go, isn't it? Yes, it will be hard to make him go, but the Conservative Party has always been ruthless when it's come to getting rid of its leaders. So, so the process that would happen if he chooses not to resign is there is a committee, as I said before, the 1922 committee, which is essentially like a trade union of backbench MPs. Now, the, back, now the, the, the 1922 committee has a, an executive committee which is in charge of all of the leadership rules in the Conservative Party. Now, at the moment, confidence votes can only happen once every 12 months, and there was a confidence vote just two weeks ago, uh, which would mean under current rules, there cannot be another one for 12 months. But there are elections for the 1922 committee executive coming up. And the rebels essentially want to highlight had to hijack those elections, electing a bunch of MPs who want to change the 1922 committees so that so that a vote of confidence could happen before the 12 month period and then usher in a new vote as quickly as possible. And then if he were to lose a majority of Conservative MPs support, uh, he would be he would be ousted as prime minister and there would be a leadership election. Yeah. And the other option here that some have been talking about is they think it would be a desperate move. Would Boris Johnson call a general election and take his chances? So this is something which I've heard periodically over the last couple of weeks. It is actually something which the prime minister has denied. It would be a very high risk strategy. Andrew, because the Conservatives aren't doing too well in the polls. They're not doing, it's not sort of a, a, 19, a 1990s level of polling disaster that we saw with Tony Blair and Sir John Major, but we are, you know, a good seven or 10 points behind Labour in the polls really quite consistently now for a couple of months. So it wouldn't seem to me to be an electorally prudent decision to go to the electorate right now to vote, to vote uh, in a general election. We've already had many over, well, since Brexit, really, since 2015. I think there have been three general elections and we, we don't need a fourth one. Yeah, Albie Amankoa joining us from over in the UK. Uh, crisis reveals things. Crisis brings pressure. Pressure reveals fault lines. How much of the political stuff that's going on in Parliament, and, and to be fair here, the Labour uh, Party has not exactly been covering themselves in glory either, although Boris is going to get all the headlines because of this. There, there, it's been kind of a mess the last few weeks. How much of this is the crisis, the cost of living crisis? Every time we talk to our UK friends over there, they're like, oh, no, this is all anybody's talking about is cost of living. There is some international stuff. Northern Ireland's a mess. At, at some point, 
is there a feeling in England that the government, he, Boris Johnson's line has always been, we're going to get on with it. We're going to get on about the business. He's done that to that point. Does it feel like the government is kind of grinding down and getting under the weight of all this? And with the cost of living crisis, that's just so much more pressure. And that's bringing a lot of these fault lines out. Undoubtedly, the biggest issue facing the British people at the moment is the cost of living crisis. You know, we've got inflation at nine point uh, at nine point one percent. We've got fuel prices spiraling out of control. We've got gas companies not passing on the government fuel duty cut onto consumers. People are really feeling the punch. And to the government's credit, they have actually come out with quite an unprecedented package uh, in support to the British people. A lot of people argue that it's not a necessarily a conservative way to handle a cost of living crisis by essentially handing out money to people. Other people like me would perhaps prefer tax cuts, but nonetheless, no one can argue that the government isn't at least trying to solve the problem. But all of that, Andrew, is being overshadowed uh, by the way that the Prime Minister and indeed Number 10, supported by the rest of the Cabinet, respond to what can actually be uh, quite simple events that just require a good response from the Prime Minister and a good response from the government, and none of that seems to have been happening. Why is the comms on the small things? And I don't, and I'm not meaning small as in um, trivial matters because these are serious matters, but he does good on Brexit. He had that wonderful optic of him walking around Kiev. You know, he, all, he seems to get the big stuff and get in the mainstream of the British people on a lot of that stuff. And it's just self-inflicted wounds on all this other stuff, like just come out and say the truth about like Partygate happened. Everybody went, okay, there's going to be a photo come out at some point. Like everybody kind of felt that one coming, you know, self-inflicted over and over and over again, letting this minister, and I don't want to get into the allegations because they still got to vote the process, but you know, ministers that you know are problematic hang around because you needed the votes and that's the way it looked. Why is it, is it just part of his personality, that big outward personality that he just sometimes doesn't handle this small stuff? Because it's almost baffling. Yeah, this is part and parcel with who Boris Johnson is, isn't it? I wouldn't necessarily describe them as small things. I would probably describe them as things which should be easy to handle. It should not be difficult to handle a situation where an MP is has allegations of sexual assault against them, which are then upheld. It should not be difficult not to promote that person to a position where they're essentially handling the pastoral care of conservative backbench MPs. That should be an easy thing to handle. The Partygate saga should have been, in my opinion, an easy thing to handle. It just required honesty. Um, And what a lot of Boris loyalists will say is he's got all of the big calls right. But when there are so many of these easy things to handle, which are handled abjectly, terribly, it piles up and it ends up in a situation like this where we've got two senior cabinet ministers resigning. And I think this all actually stems from the Paston scandal last year. So this has been going on uh, since around October or November time last year. Yeah. Albi Amancona joining us. That's why we have him. He says it way more elegantly than I did and got to the point much better from my bad question. Well done, sir. Appreciate that. Join us on uh, we're going to take right after this break. Bill Bowkett joining us from the UK, another great Young Voices contributor and a great commentator in his own right over there. Make sure you're following him. One of the things the speculation was that Boris Johnson has somewhat wrote out the trouble he has is because there's not a clear cut 
successor to him in the conservatives, in the Tories. Uh, is the same true with Keir Starmer? If he holds to this and he steps down, is there a clear cut successor? Or could we be in a situation come the next general election where both parties are kind of scrambling for leadership at the same time? That's certainly the case. I think, uh, at least in the Tory party, there are several possible contenders to uh, step into number 10 Downing Street. You've got the Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, who's been you know, center stage in negotiating um, a way out of the uh, uh, Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, she's also been integral to making all these post-Brexit trade deals with countries like Australia uh, and New Zealand uh, and, and other countries. Whereas with the, the Labour Party, um, there's a bit more open scope for who to take over. I mean, but the problem there is, is that uh, even you know, with American listeners, it's the same with British uh, listeners or, or British people. Is that there's, there's not really any standout figures? Um, I actually looked at recently in the most Ugo, uh, most recent Ugo polling into the most popular Labour figures. That's not just uh, MPs; it could also be um, uh, mayors like the, the mayor of London, to be calm, or former prime ministers like uh, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair, and I think. It was only Yvette Cooper, who's the shadow uh, Home Secretary, that came out as, as the highest current you know, sitting member of Labour's front bench, and she was seventh. Um, I mean, on top of my head, there's people like Wes Streeting, the shadow health secretary, who's you know, a very eloquent speaker, you know, very moderate. Lisa Nandy uh, is the shadow foreign secretary, and she's very tough when it comes to the Ouija Muslims in, in China. Uh, and also criticising the government's uh, levelling up strategy um, to, to make Britain more equal, more fairer, more uh, financially prosperous. Um, but the problem there is, is that ask any normal member of the public, you know, to name, I don't know, 10 members of the Labour shadow cabinet, uh, you'd really struggle to probably list half, you know, list four or five. So, um there's definitely people who could take over as summer, but they would also have, you know, an extremely difficult job um, in not only, you know, resonating with the British public, um, but also, you know, creating a, uh, a, a vision which they see as, as, as uh, moving on from 12 years of Tory rule, um, especially since the Tory party are now moving further left uh, on economics since they've introduced all these tax rises around national insurance and VAT, it, it's kind of got to raise the question is what the Labour Party actually offering uh, nowadays? That would certainly be the question that Sakir Starmer or indeed any future Labour leader will have to answer. It, how much of this is because British politics is like anywhere else. Like you've mentioned, the Tories have been in charge for quite a while. There's got to be just a fatigue factor with some of it just because they've been in power for so long. But like you said, you also have this dynamic of the post-Corbyn Labor Party kind of trying to figure out who they are. And then in these results, there's definitely something to be said. There's a bit of a rural and urban divide, as we would call it in the States, with some of these results. How much of this is, yeah, there's a fatigue, but the Labor Party is still going to have to come with some kind of a cohesive vision here if they're going to take the leadership? Yeah, uh, that's that's totally true. Um, for, for the last at least four years, uh, at least before the pandemic, the, the overarching issue was uh, was Brexit uh, the, and Britain leaving 
European Union had that referendum where the majority of the public uh, said that we'd be better off being outside the, the trading bloc, the intergovernmental organization, and the Labour Party uh, under Jeremy Corbyn's reign, you know, weren't standing for it during the 2019 general election. They actually had in their manifesto that they would have a, a second referendum uh, on the Brexit deal. So Labour would essentially go to go to the European Union in Belgium. Uh, you know, negotiate a deal and then have a referendum where they would campaign against it. Um, and that hurt a lot of voters, especially in their traditional heartlands in the north uh, and in the Midlands, who, you know, strongly voted uh, to leave the European Union compared to uh, London and the south of England. Um, uh, so that there's that regional issue, but that Brexit is becoming less prevalent. That It might be interconnected to things like you know, the cost of living, the price of food, uh, which has been skyrocketing, you know, inflected, the Bank of England projects that inflation is going to be at 10% uh, at the end of this year. Um, and because of the way in which the Tories have uh, mishandled the economy by, you know, throughout the pandemic and, and now post-pandemic, Labour actually leading the Tories when it comes to trust, uh, at least public polling when it comes to, you know, trust in handling and managing public finances. So on the economic side, you know, they do have a strength in there. And I could see come the next general election um, that they could just simply ask the question to voters, you know, in any, you know, uh, election video or during a debate, has your living standards improved under the Tories? And the vast majority of people would say no. Uh, and that in itself is a winning formula. It's just, could they incorporate that with a strong, you know, message for wider society, for, you know, promoting social liberalism, but also, um, you know, proving that they are more trustworthy parties than Tories who, like I mentioned, have been embroiled in issues around trust, uh, you know, sleaze and sexual assault um, and second jobs. Um, it's going to be, you know, tough ask. And also the Tories have an 80-seat majority uh, in the House of Commons and only once in history has a majority uh, been slashed, you know, that big. Um, so it's going to be a mighty trend for the for the Labour Party. Now they're talking about the Tories, Bill Balkett joining us here on Hertel. They're talking a lot of policies here, but we're just kind of looking at it from the outside. You're there, you tell me, because of the COVID policies, because of the adjustments from Brexit, because of their tax policies that you already touched on, because of the NHS policies that they've been working on, fairly or unfairly, however you want to parse it out, they're kind of painted into the corner that they're going to have to fight out of. And I don't think they've got a lot that they can really do here, do they? They they have some legroom, I feel. Um, at least when it comes to the economy, they can, Boris Johnson, should he, should he be, you know, the Conservative Party leader, come the next election, which is most likely to be either 2023 or, or even 2024, then they would say, uh, but we didn't have um, a war uh, and we didn't have a pandemic, you know, in our election manifesto um, in that case. Uh, and as we saw with the Queen's speech, um, there, there's a lot of red meat policies which are, you know, going to be put through uh, the Houses of Parliament over, over the next parliamentary year. We've got uh, a big bill uh, when it comes to um, regulating big tech. We have uh, a very big bill, the National Anti-Borders Bill, which is supposed to 
uh, hung on illegal immigration. Um, there's a uh, deal agreed with uh, the Rwandan government to send uh, it, asylum seekers uh, trying to enter the UK and send them to uh, the Central African country. Um, and many of these red meat policies are, are being proposed not only because they were in the Conservative 2019 manifesto and they have to deliver on them, otherwise um, they, they're going to lose, you know, a couple, you know, many votes. Um, but it's also being seen and interpreted, at least by um, some politicians, uh, as, as an appeasement from Boris Johnson over uh, distrust within his own Tory ranks over the way he's handled the economy, the, his um, behaviour during the Partygate scandal, um, and and whether he misled Parliament uh, in in the process as well. Um, so when it comes to that uh, next election, when it, when it does come around, this this is the pivotal question: is that the Tories have been in power for twelve years now, and and they've got to ask voters and really appeal to them because there are going to be some who are going to be apathetic uh, and many people aren't turning up to doorstep as much as they were that actually the turnout in the local elections was just over 30%, which is an incredibly low number. It's, it's half of what a, you normally see at a general election. So, so they really have to, the brand of Boris Johnson, uh, along with you know, the appeal of conservatism, uh, modern British conservatism um, has to stick, otherwise they're at risk of uh, of succeeding, uh, uh, succeeding to to the Labour Party, which uh, to them would be um, which would be an economic and a social disaster. Because of what transpired before uh, with Brexit, with the changing in power, with Boris Johnson's own rise to power, has it been a blessing or a curse that they've kind of everybody kind of admits like this general election is going to be out in the future? It's going to be at least another year in the future, probably. Is that a blessing or a curse to the Tory party that's trying to readjust on the fly here? Well, there was one report I saw from uh, Business Insider, actually, um, Kathleen ne- uh, Neelan, who uh, heard from several Tory sources that potentially the Tories are eyeing up election uh, this year. And the reason they're doing it this year is because they feel that the economy at this moment of time is not getting any better with um, the uh, MPS, as I mentioned, predicting that hike in inflation, uh, hike in interest rates uh, resultingly as well, that if the, if the state of the economy doesn't improve as, as they would hope, um, you know, come 12 months time, then, then what's the point of holding off for a general election? I mean, that there could be the benefit for, for Johnson in um, putting behind some of the more personal uh, Westminster bubble stories, as we like to call them, around sleaze and party gate. Um, because as you're seeing with public uh, opinion, uh, I think in the most recent Salvation poll, uh, it showed still that a majority uh, of the British people want Boris Johnson to resign and that majority see him as a dishonest uh, politicians so that in itself could be an advantage but then that would give also Labour the chance to make more ground we've got some really important by-elections uh, for parliamentary seats coming up we've got the Wakefield by-election which was caused after Imran Khan a Tory MP uh, was suspended uh, for uh, uh, for sexual harassment uh, and then we've got another uh 
in, in, in Tiverton and Honiton uh, by uh, Neil Parrish, an MP who was caught watching pornography in the House of Commons chamber. Um, and that in itself will be a test. I mean, local, local uh, elections actually, as we mentioned, uh, have more local factors involved in it. And the thing is that parties are able to concentrate all their resources into, uh, into these different uh, marginals and seats uh, to gain the best advantage. Um, but it's a, it's a, but I think the most realistic solution as a uh, state that we can see is probably going to be 2023. Wait till this Metropolitan Police investigations Parsegate is concluded. Wait until uh, the late uh, Durham Police finish their conclusion. You know, hopefully the situation in Ukraine improves. Um, wait and see if any of the measures implemented by the Tory, like the uh, energy rebate actually has uh, any impact on people's livelihoods uh, and see where to go from there. Yeah, it makes that Keir Starmer promise even more interesting if that should go down. Uh, Bill Bowker, join us real quick before we have to let you go. A lot of the threads that went through all of these issues, we talked about the economy, the leftover wake of Brexit, things like this, uh, border policy. Those are new spins on a very old problem has risen since the Queen's speech. Northern Ireland is getting messy and it's getting loud. Uh, just real quickly before we have to let you go, what's the, the results of that? How is that going to play? Because, again, an old problem, a little bit of a new spin in it with Sinn Féin taking power in the Republic of Ireland. How's that going to play going forward? Yes, we can't forget uh, the other parts of the UK as well. Before we get into Northern Ireland and Wales, uh, Labour increased their share of the vote in Scotland. The Scottish National Party increased their share of the vote. So that in itself is going to raise further questions about the second independence referendum uh, over there. But the, the big story I feel for the entire general election, as you said, is what happened in Northern Ireland, uh, which is Sinn Féin uh, becoming the largest party in Northern Ireland. So actually the first time that a nationalist party uh, is the largest party in the province since Northern Ireland was created uh, over 101 years ago. And there are far-reaching consequences with this, not only because uh, the actually the biggest unionist party who have, remained, have been in power there for you know many a decade, a democratic unionist party, are refusing to go into a power share agreement in Northern Ireland, because uh, unlike other democracies in the UK, where we have a majoritarian system, um, where, you know, parties with the most votes would then, um, you know, be able to rule, or if they lack a majority, they would have to be in coalition. Uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, the different factions, the Unionists and the Nationalist parties actually have to work together and they have to, the, to reach consensus. Um, but the Democrats and Unionist party don't want to do it because they see Sinn Féin as historically, you know, the political wing of the uh, IRA. Um, they see that they're going to break up the union. You hear Mary Lou MacDonald, the president of Sinn Féin, wanting a border poll, uh, you know, within the next five years. And then we've got this issue uh, around the protocol, um, which ultimately the Sinn Féin support, uh, but the DUP don't because it's causing uh, trade barriers uh, between uh, the UK, the, you know, the Great Britain, as we know, or, or mainland Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, and we heard today that Liz Truss um, wants to scrap elements of the protocol um, in order to reduce bureaucracy, and but also in turn respect the Good Friday Agreement, which is what has preserved peace in Northern Ireland over the last three decades. Um, it's going it, to, just because they won the majority, 
doesn't come actually if you combine the different votes from the other parties then unionism is still the largest block uh, at least among voters uh, but it's certainly going to put pressure um, on Boris Johnson it's going to put pressure on the wider union uh, and it's going to raise further question as to uh, Northern Ireland would be better off uh, as part of the United Kingdom uh, or whether it would want to um, unite Ireland uh, for the first time, or, uh, you know, in over a century. Yeah, very interesting times. We're definitely going to have you back again to continue to cover this because uh, it's not going to get less interesting in UK politics. Our friend Bill Balkett over in the UK, my friend. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome to the special edition of Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Uh, over the course of the last few months, we have done a lot of covering of Elon Musk. So now with the news that the Twitter buyout by Elon Musk is not going to go forward, although it's going to be all over court cases and social media for some time to come now, we thought this would be a good time to go back and review how we covered it. We talk a lot about accountability on the show, government accountability, individual accountability. We do accountability for ourselves too. So here's all the things we've been saying about it since the news on this story first started breaking back in April. Us and some of our guests as well. How did we do? What did we get right? What did we get wrong? So we're going to put it out there in this special edition of Herd Tell. We're going to review how we covered the Elon Musk story. You can also check my timeline on Twitter at 4 for the fire. Happy to go through there. I don't delete tweets unless there's just something egregiously wrong or whatever. You can tell that by the misspellings I use in there. But we want to do a little bit of review. So instead of just amplifying more noise, we're going to do what our core principle here is. We're going to turn down the noise. We're going to review ourselves, how we covered the Elon Musk and Twitter story over the last couple of months. Going to do that with a couple different segments, including some guests, and we hope you enjoy it. Let us know how we did. You got comments, questions, criticisms, whatever. We'd love to hear from you at HerdTellShow at gmail.com, HerdTellShow on the twitter.com reach out any way you want to love to hear from you it's always free to subscribe itunes spotify all the podcasting platforms we're on iHeartRadio. also our radio partner bigtalker.live you can get the facebook feed there and of course on the youtube channel we would love to have you always free to subscribe and here's our review of the elon musk v twitter saga on this special edition of Hertel. back to her tell okay i don't really want to talk about this but i have to because fair is fair and i took a whole lot of flack on social media for it so let me break this down for you a little bit uh elon musk i have we have discussed him on this program before we've had guests on in whole segments talking about elon musk he's a complicated guy when you're a mad genius the problem is the genius part comes with the mad part and the mad part comes with the genius part I don't mean mad as in, you know, insane. I mean, mad as in he's just a special kind of guy. People that function on that level, they're just different. Nothing wrong with that. I've broke it down on this program before, and I've been consistent. I love the SpaceX stuff. Tesla is a subsidized Ponzi scheme. We'll talk about that some other time. Go ahead and get mad. It just is. If you're not getting all that subsidized money from other car companies, it's not a car company. It's a luxury brand. But we'll get into that some other time. 
I'm not a huge fan of the Tesla stuff. I love the SpaceX stuff. He's doing great work for humanity in that rank. And then how he personally conducts himself. I've got all kinds of questions. Remember when he called the cave rescuer in Thailand a pedo? And he called him that just because they shot down his idea of trying to invent a submarine to get the kids out of the cave. He got mad online and besmirched that man for no good reason. Another, he doesn't have any impulse control. So now everybody's freaking out because he was going to go on the board for Twitter. He's not going to go on the board. He owns 9%. Now he has done a filing to buy Twitter outright. Everybody just calm down. Okay. I understand the numbers are big. He's put in a $40 billion plus dollar offer. These, these deals, let's be adults here. He doesn't have $40 million laying around. I know some people estimate his worth at $250 billion. That's not the issue. You have to put these deals together. They have to be financed. Somebody, a third party on top of the financing has to verify the financing. These things are very, very complicated. Just because he says he's offering that, there's a hundred steps before that would actually come true. And I want to bring you back to something that happened before. And some for some reason, everybody seems to have forgotten it. In 2018, he said on Twitter that he had secured private funding to take Tesla private, which he says it was true. The SEC, the Security Exchange Commissions, disagreed, as did most of the company do. And he got in a whole lot of trouble for it. He got in so much trouble that him and Tesla both had to pay $20 million apiece in the settlement to the SEC. And he had to step down as the chairman of Tesla. This was just in 2018. This wasn't that long ago. So before everybody gets all hot and bothered about Elon Musk buying Twitter and getting into the free speech debate and all that, which I've got into a little bit online with some folks, I see zero evidence that he would be any better for free speech than the current management of Twitter, but he has fans and fans don't want to listen to such things. He has a habit of talking big and not backing it up. He cannot pull $40 billion out of thin air. These kind of deals have to go through. It would have to go through regulatory approval. He would have to do a lot of work to do it. So I would calm down. I would let this breathe. He's not going to buy Twitter in the next 10 minutes. I don't really want him to buy it at all, but that's another matter neither here nor there. Just let this one breathe. It may turn out like the taking Tesla private thing where he's just shooting his mouth off online. I know he did a filing. Anybody can file anything. Calm down. Keep your bearing. Let this one breathe. Elon Musk, the person, the idea, the myth, the living legend, has gotten a lot bigger than Elon Musk, the man who actually interacts with people online and does things to get attention, to drive his businesses. He's very smart. He uses social media to manipulate things like stock prices. Let this thing breathe. See what actually happens on it. You don't need to get on your ramparts over Elon Musk. Just hang in there. Let's see if there's actually any there there to this particular story. More Heard Tell right after this. First, let's start uh, with some media news. Folks spent all day. Now, I, I spent way too much time on Twitter. I will admit it. I've told you I love my Twitter account. I love the interaction. Uh, that's what got me into writing, got me into doing radio, and got me into doing this program, Hertel. That all started with getting a Twitter account and making friends and doing things like that. So I love Twitter. Uh, Elon Musk has apparently agreed in principle, and Twitter has agreed to it, to sell Twitter to Elon Musk. And everybody has absolutely lost their freaking minds on Twitter. Uh, let's start with some perspective. Twitter is only about 20% of the American population has a Twitter account, and even smaller slice of that is active on Twitter. And we have data. Something like 80-85% of all tweets come 
from a very, very small percentage of content providers. And then the rest of it is just amplification, people retweeting it, commenting on it, things like this. It's an echo chamber inside of an echo chamber. Now, having said all that, we talk about Twitter not being real life. That is true, but Twitter is influential because of the people who are on it, especially media people. Uh, one of the reasons I'm on it, uh, because I interact with those folks. I do this program like this. Uh, the, a lot of the media folks are on Twitter, so it has an outside influence. It's both the headwaters and the <laughs> end tail uh, rapids of the information river that flows through our news media. So Twitter's still important, but people have lost their minds because Elon Musk is trying to buy it. Um, I want to quote our friend Michael Siegel writing in Ordinary-Times.com today. He wrote this. He said, now, right now, Twitter's freaking out over the deal because, well, that's what Twitter does. It freaks out over things, quoting Michael here. But as noted in the New York Times, it will be some time before this deal finally closes, and there are a number of hurdles Musk has to clear before he swaps $45 billion in imaginary Tesla value for $45 billion in imaginary Twitter value. The consensus seems to be that this is great for the right wing and bad for the left wing, reading from Michael Siegel here. The basis of this is, well, I'm not sure what the basis of that belief is. No one knows that Elon Musk's politics are, less of all, what he will do if he takes over Twitter. The panic celebration is a reaction to Twitter's prior policies, which has a bit of a left-wing slant, banning President Trump after the January 6th riot, banning COVID deniers like Alex Berenson, and generally speaking, being more quick to ban racist white right-wing trolls than the moronic left-wing trolls. I myself am agnostic on the prospect of Elon Twitter. Remember, this is Michael Siegel, our good friend, most seen guest on this program. Good, good. Uh, first of all, I'm not sure the deal is going to happen. There are a lot of steps before, before Elon can run naked through the Twitter headquarters. Second, God forbid he does it. Second, I think we will find that many of the policies are in place for a reason, so his ability to change them without exposing himself legally is going to be limited. Third, while he talks a big talk, no one knows what's going to happen to translate into actual corporate policy. I don't think even Elon Musk, having finally caught the car, knows what he's going to do with it. If I were a betting man, this is Michael Siegel writing in Ordinary-Times.com, I would be on marginal changes that leave right-wingers disappointed and left-wingers relieved. But ultimately, this is a very inside baseball thing. While Twitter has a lot of power in the media, its reach into the real world is extremely limited. And maybe if people carry out their threats and leave it, they'll realize just how limited that reach is. Michael Siegel writing there. Uh, that's why they don't leave, or if they leave, they don't go for long because they realize they need Twitter to be relevant in their business and or social media pursuits. What do we make of all this? Uh, look, I really didn't want Elon Musk to buy Twitter. I've been pretty open about that. I was skeptical that he could buy it and put together a package to do so. I still slightly am because this has got to go through regulatory approval. So we'll see. Maybe this does go through. If I'm wrong, we say we're wrong. That's what we do here. We just do truth. Uh, we don't lose any points for being wrong. We just say we're wrong, adjust and move forward. So if I'm wrong on this, I'm wrong on it. I wish it wasn't true, but is it going to be that big of a thing? I don't know. Musk has the attention span of usually about 11 minutes. It's part of his genius and his fobbles as a human being. He has these spurts of things where he does stuff. We'll see how long Twitter keeps his attention. The other thing about social media companies we need to understand, we talked about this with the true social media uh, that Donald Trump is hilariously failing at. Social media is a very, very tough platform to run. It's not like running a normal website. 
Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and places like this have armies of engineers to keep these things running. They're highly technical. I know it sounds great for people to say, like, we're going to put out the algorithm open source. So everybody can, folks, unless you can recode, you're not going to understand what that algorithm says. Now they can tell you the parameters of it and things like this. Um, I don't understand it. I really don't. I know there's this fanboy fascination with Elon Musk because of all the various things he does. I love the SpaceX stuff. I don't like the Tesla stuff for reasons we've talked about before. I'm skeptical of it. But folks have absolutely turned him into an avatar over the last couple of days that he's going to fix all their complaints over social media. No, he's not. He wouldn't know how to. And frankly, him tweeting about something and him running a multi-billion dollar company is two very different things. Folks need to calm down with their expectations, especially on the left who are acting like this is the end of free speech ever. Number one, it's still a private company. Number two, we already told you the stats of how small an area Twitter covers. Everybody just calm down. Keep your bearing. This isn't the end of the world. It's not the end of Twitter. It's not the end of free speech for sure. And it's definitely not the end of democracy. Even if you don't like Elon Musk, and I'm suspect of him, this isn't the end of the world. Even if you're a big fan of Elon Musk, he's not going to make it perfect the way you like it. In fact, he's already shown a proclivity to just say whatever's off the top of his head. Chances are he's probably going to say something to upset you later on down the road. So keep your bearing and then make Twitter what you want to make of it because the truth is twitter is what you make of it it's up to you don't blame other people if you're having a bad twitter experience change your timeline change who you follow follow me because you should be anyway more hotel right after this back to herd tell okay let's get into it uh everybody's been talking about it i've been talking about it i don't want to talk about it so i'm going to ask him about it and he's going to talk about it uh rj lehman our friend uh he is the editor-in-chief of the international center for law and economics he's a good twitter buddy for a long time so one of the reasons i do this show i get to talk to my twitter buddies in real life good to meet him and a twitter supper club member in good standing from the wonderful state of florida on the left hand side how are you today sir i'm good how are you fantastic uh, we were kicking this around on Twitter. There's been some developments since then, but let's reset it this way because everybody's talking about Elon Musk and Twitter, and they're all talking about it from the content point of view, the cultural point of view, the social media point of view. Talk to me about the business side of this because I think it's getting glossed over. And really, in the grand scheme of things, that side of it's more important. And all that content stuff folks talking about, none of that happens without the business side of it being in order. So let's start there. Just mm-hmm. what we know now, where do you think the business side of this sits? So what we know is Twitter has been an underperforming stock for a few years. Um, when you compare it to the other major platforms, uh, particularly Facebook, which, which also includes the Facebook subsidiaries like Instagram and uh, WhatsApp, um, Twitter does not generate anywhere near the same revenue. It doesn't have the same kind of user base. It's got a different kind of uh, uh, profile in terms of who its users are and what they get out of the experience. Um, it, the, pri- I, the obvious primary difference is Twitter does not have the kind of demographic information about its users that Facebook does. Facebook knows quite a bit about who you are, what you like, what you might want to buy, um, which is valuable information for their, for their advertisers. Uh, Twitter, much less so. 
you know, it, it does know some things. It knows who you follow, knows who you inter engage with. Um, it doesn't necessarily really know who you are. There's a lot of anonymity on Twitter. Um, and uh, it has not been able in quite a while to convert its service into a really profitable business. So that's, that's why there's a good business case for a takeover for taking it another direction that uh, it's, it's original concept um, was a good one and a popular one, but not necessarily a profitable one. Elon Musk um, has a long history of, of uh, controversy on the Twitter platform. Um, and so it was unclear when he first announced that he was taking a stake in the company, what his goal was. He uh, took uh, a nine, he announced on April 1st, many people noted it was April Fool's Day, that he was buying 9% of the company, which is an important uh, uh, threshold because at 10%, there's a lot of reporting requirements that accompany having that size stake. So he didn't go over that. Um, and he, uh, it was announced initially that he would be joining the board of directors. Uh, that uh, ultimately a couple of days later did not happen. Uh, the, the board announced that Elon was no longer interested in joining. Many people speculated that the reason he wasn't interested in joining is as a member of the board of directors, he would have fiduciary duties to look out for the best interests of the company. And so a lot of his behavior talking smack <laughs> about Twitter and what it's like and what it does would be stuff that he would be precluded theoretically from doing and that that might be why he didn't join the board. And so then uh, again, a couple of days later, he made a full offer to buy out all of Twitter, the whole, the whole lock, stock and barrel um, and take the company private. So it would no longer be a, a publicly traded company. Um, initially the board was resistant to doing that. It, uh, it announced just a couple of days ago, you know, depending on when people hear this, uh, that they, they had considered his offer and uh, would be accepting it. So what we know is that not a lot about what, what Elon wants to do with the business model of Twitter. He has suggested maybe relying less on advertising on, and more on a uh, uh, subscriber type uh, service where you would have incentives to pay for additional services, to pay to get yourself a verified account um, and that it would be private. Uh, and that he would exercise less moderation than Twitter has exercised in the past. But how he, he'll make money with this is not clear at all, um, especially since like this is now going to be on his books. I mean, he and his, his investors, financers are, are going to own this whole thing. Um, you, you probably need a business plan because most people don't want to throw away $44 billion for uh, an asset that's not going to generate some revenue for you. Now, let's talk about that for just a second, because this is something else that's not getting talked about mm -hmm. at all. This is not a done deal, and it's nope. not even on step two or three of a 100-step process of being a done deal. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about um, a hostile takeover, which is what this is, even though Twitter's agreeing to it, by, by legal definition, it's still a hostile takeover. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is highly regulated. There's a lot of rules to this. There's oversight to this. He has to prove his financing. There has to be a third-party guarantor of this financing. We're a long ways from this deal being done, but everybody's acting like this thing is done. Talk about that process a little bit because, and we'll lead into it a minute ago, Elon Musk 
recently, 2018, he yeah. said on Twitter, of all places, he was going to take Tesla private. And that went so well, it bought him a $20 million <laughs> fine, Tesla a $20 million fine. He turned out he did not have, he still to this day says he was serious, so SEC disagrees. He had to step down as the chairman of Tesla for at least five years. And here's the kicker that brings us to today. The SEC had to approve his tweeting, of all things, on Twitter. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry, when I see a movie one time, I want some proof that the sequel is going to be at least better. Am I wrong for thinking that way? Because we're a long way to go on this puppy, but people are acting like it's done. It's it's uh, it's still uncertain. I would I would bet more likely than not at this point, but we'll see where he gets his financing. We know he is he has come forward with it's a forty four billion dollar deal. He has announced he has twenty five point five billion dollars in uh, lender financing. That still leaves open, you know, almost twenty billion dollars that. Uh, would come, he says, out of equity financing, which would mean basically Tesla stock or stock in one of his other uh, ventures, but most likely Tesla. He also has SpaceX and the Boring Company um, and a few other smaller ventures uh, that he could pledge that stock. All of which, though, if if he pledges, it means he loses control in those primary in those primary companies that that he has been at the helm of for quite a while. Um, so Tesla shares immediately after the Twitter announcement started falling because it was, it was unclear what would happen with Tesla. Would they dilute their shareholders by doing more, uh, by issuing more stock and that that's how he would end up financing the Twitter buy? Um, still unclear. The regulatory uh, approvals that are, are pending, um, it would have to go through antitrust clearance. It's probably not an antitrust concern because Elon Musk and his companies are not currently in the social media business. Um, so uh, if you if uh, if Coca-Cola buys Pepsi or uh, McDonald's buys Burger King, that's what's called a horizontal merger. You're you're merging you're merging with a competitor in the same market. And you're expanding out. That almost always triggers serious antitrust concern. This would be more what you call a vertical merger. So. In vertical mergers, there's less initial antitrust concern. There can be in some circumstances if you uh, are different parts of the production chain, say if, if General Motors bought out Uniroyal tires, um, there might be concern that General Motors is gonna use that acquisition to uh, try to uh, prevent its competitors, Toyota, from buying Uniroyal tires at the cheap level that General Motors can get it. That's not necessarily a bad thing though, uh, but it would be something that you would have regulators being concerned about. The only concern a regulator could raise here, and it's it's one that I wouldn't be shocked if it happens because the FTC has gotten very activist under the Biden administration, is what the theory of potential competition. That the problem here is Elon Musk might've started a social media company in the future to compete with Twitter. And by buying Twitter, he doesn't start his social media company in the future. And so he's preventing theoretical future competition from happening, um, which sounds ridiculous, but there are regulators who, who pursue those kinds of ridiculous theories. So if the FTC were to step in and, and you know, pose a, a, a theoretical complaint on potential competition, um, I would not be shocked. 
I think it would be ridiculous, but I would not be shocked. Yeah, I don't want them to do that because then I'd have to defend Elon Musk getting Twitter, <laughs> which I don't really want to do, but I would have to in that case because that's absolutely ridiculous talking to R.J. Lehman. Yep. Yep. Um, let, let's let's delve into that for just a second, though. Beside the regulation of it, yeah. um, what's actually going to happen if he acquires this company? Because social media companies are not – I know it's a tech startup and the things and all the buzzwordy stuff – Social media companies are very specific beasts. They need armies upon armies of engineers to function. It yep. is codes and algorithm. I know they're talking about the algorithm going, folks, you can't mm-hmm. read the public code unless they give you, like the, the algorithms are so complicated. Yeah. The coding is so complicated. Even if he gets this thing, it's one thing to tweet about it. Yeah. In practicality, is this going to be one of those things, even if he gets control of the company, some engineers are going to sit him down and go, okay, look, Mr. Musk, I know you're this, you know, boy wonder genius, but there's some pretty hard and fast rules and physics involved here when it comes to social media. How much is he actually going to be able to change, even setting aside the profitability thing, which we'll come back to in a minute, just on yeah. a practical level, there's some limits on what you can do here, right? There absolutely is. Twitter, um, the uh, the APIs, which are basically the instructions that you could use uh, to create, you know, say an app that takes advantage of the Twitter platform. You may remember a few years ago there used to be a lot of those. I mean, the most famous one is TweetDeck, right? Where where you could use this third party app to schedule tweets, to filter your your followers. Um, I'm and, using it right now. Right. So. <laughs> Twitter has has pulled back a bit on what you can do with third-party apps over the years. And theoretically, what Elon is talking about when he says he wants to make the code open source, uh, both, you know, the, the sort of the way he frames it is so that it would improve trust in the company. I mean, what I hear when I hear that is he wants to allow third-party developers to create apps that could, uh, for instance, you know, perform their own moderation, um, which is maybe not a terrible idea. I don't know that the the physics of it will work out, but you know, you could, for instance, uh, if if you want a uh, a Twitter feed that includes a lot of like, you know, scandalous content, you could have that kind of Twitter feed. If you don't, you could use this app to filter out some of that stuff. A lot of questions that are currently going all the way up to the top to the moderation team at Twitter, maybe could be handled by third parties. Um, and so different kinds of users could have different kinds of apps. But anytime you open things up to third parties, the first question is security. Um, the more you open up to, to third parties, the more you increase your cyber risks. Um, Twitter has been breached in the past. There was the famous incident just uh, about a year or two ago uh, where a teenager here in Tampa uh, compromised. Uh, the, it was not a, a super advanced uh, sort of exploit. It was something that was done by, you know, finding a person who was on the inside who gave him, you know, access to a master panel. But that was the famous day that the blue checks could not tweet <laughs> because they locked down all verified accounts because they were getting hacked. Um, so that that kind of thing is, is something you would be concerned about uh, if you opened up the platform further. Um, that's why a lot of platforms are more closed. Yeah. Talking to our friend, RJ Lehman. Uh, we're talking Elon Musk. We're talking Twitter. We're talking about 
the machinations thereof. We're going to take a quick break on Hertel. Come right back. Continue to talk about this because we've been talking about it for days on end, and we all just need to talk about it for another 10 minutes or so. We'll do so on Hertel when it comes back right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel, talking to our friend R.J. Lehman uh, down there in sunny South Florida, as famous people used to say daily. Uh, let's back up for a second with this merger thing. Mergers are one of those things where it affects a lot of people. I had it happen to me. I lost my job because our company got bought by another. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, they're like, well, we're going to get rid of 360 people. And it doesn't even have anything to do with me. You're just a line number. People hear about mergers, but they don't really understand how it works. Mm -hmm. So let's back up for a second and make sure everybody's got the nomenclature down. When you're talking about Elon Musk, Elon Musk cannot just walk up to a company, Twitter or any other, and go, oh, I'm going to buy you when it's a public company. Talk about that process a little bit, because I think that's where the breakdown on this thing happened. Shareholders have rights. Shareholders have voting responsibilities. Um, it's a complicated thing. Let's work through that nomenclature just a little bit to see if we can get the noise turned down on this thing a little. Sure. So when, when he took his uh, 9% stake, that did make him the largest shareholder in Twitter. Um, there were some that were close, you know, in the, in the 8% range. And those companies tend to be mutual funds, um, the largest being BlackRock and uh, Vanguard. Um, that's true of almost every major public company is that the largest investors are what are called institutional investors. Those are your mutual funds. Your pension funds, including you know state employee pension funds, tend to be among the largest. Um, your uh, life insurers and other insurance companies. Um, they're very, uh, by nature, conservative investors. They buy the whole market. They'll, they'll buy a share of every company in the S&P 500. Um, and they exercise their voting rights, but in a usually in a pretty predictable and conservative way. They have advisors that will tell them how to vote um, in the annual proxy vote uh, on questions like the CEO's pay. Um, they, they are major factors in whether or not to accept a bid, um, and they entrust the board to make those decisions. Um, a lot of people, and this came up when, when Elon, Elon made his uh, initial bid and the company, announced, the board announced it was going to um, exercise a poison pill. Well, what, what that means here specifically is they would, once Elon had 15% of the company, uh, which would render him under SEC and Delaware law, Delaware is relevant because that's where Twitter is incorporated, uh, would render him a, a interested insider. Um, they could slow his ability to buy the company by up to uh, three years. Um, mostly by granting other shareholders the right to buy more stock at a discounted rate, which would shrink his relative share of the company. Um, so why, why would a board do that? Boards, uh, the cynical take is that boards, boards of directors are only interested in their own power or their insiders, typically the CEO is a member of a board, often also the CEO is serving as the chair of the board. Um, so that, that's the way some people look at uh, corporate boards exercising their authority to uh, defensively fight off a hostile or unsolicited bid for control. Um, 
that it kind of comes with this idea that like a, a company being a shareholder in a company is like being a member of a democracy that uh that analogy only goes so far because it's like being if it were like being a member of a citizen in a democracy you could be a member of 3000 democracies at once you could choose to quit your your citizenship at any time um and you could rejoin a second later just by pushing a button you know that's not really how democracies work in the real world usually if you don't like the way a company is being run the way you exercise that opinion is not to buy it or to vote out the board but it's to sell your shares um and so the law allows Delaware law allows the board a lot of power, grants the board a lot of power to set its rules. Um, and those rules often include keeping out uh, troublemakers uh, who might not have the best interest in the company at, at heart. And that was the question is, is Elon Musk one of those troublemakers or is he making a serious bid? There's a good reason to suspect he might be just trying to stir up some stuff and not not making a serious bid. In the end, uh, we're well, not at the end, but in the end, it, uh, for this week at least, it looks like he has made what he thinks is a serious bid and what the board thinks is a serious bid. And this gets to a much bigger issue that we're gonna have to cover in depth at another time, but I wanna touch on it because we need to acknowledge it. Mm. We've had this long running political conversation and a legal conversation because we know the Supreme Court dealt with this with Citizens United of, is a corporation people or is a corporation this evil, wicked, you know, monolithic thing that just exists mm -hmm. on paper in places like Delaware that doesn't really exist, but only exists on paper. Right. That's a joke. That last part, we love people <laughs> from Delaware, mostly. I had to go to Dover too many times. I'm bitter. <laughs> but the point is, um, to be serious for a second, this is a larger conversation about government, you know, government, how they see a corporation. Is it people or is it yeah. an entity? You yeah. know, do stakeholders have democratic rights within a company? And then when you have something like, you know, Elon Musk, that's such a big whale. It goes, the whale goes through the net. The old saying goes, that's yeah. kind of what's happening here. But if it's not Twitter and it doesn't have all the buzzwords attached to it, these companies have a lot of people involved. Talk about that for just a second, because that's the bigger issue down the road of things like Citizens United, things like voting rights for companies, things like free speech and political speech for companies, yeah. all that stuff winds up in a ball when you have things, you know, Elon Musk is a wrecking ball that kind of cuts through all that stuff, mm -hmm. but all those issues aren't going away and all those issues are going to be big issues going forward, uh, yeah. both in politics and in corporate America. One of the things that concerns me, it came up, I don't think it's going to develop into anything in this instance, but uh, it's going to, it's not going to go away. Um, my governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, um, when the Twitter board announced that they were not initially, initially announced that they were going to exercise the poison pill and not accept Elon Musk's bid, he suggested that Florida, and specifically the Florida State Pension Fund, um, would sue uh, that sue the board of directors for um, not for not exercising. Uh, what would be in the best interest of them as shareholders. But clearly his interest there is political. His interest was that he does not like Silicon Valley companies and he, he, he thinks that he takes Elon's side in some of these debates about free speech. And so it would be a political lawsuit if they, fought, if they filed it. Unfortunately, that's not new. It's happened often that state officials um, have, uh, have a stake 
uh, in companies through pension funds through which they are trying to achieve political ends. So th this happened a few years ago with the state comptroller of New York, a uh, guy named Scott Stringer, who later ran for mayor. Um, and he was using his authority as the head of the New York State Pension Board um, to file these proxy ballot uh, initiatives at companies because they uh, were, were not attuned to global warming. They were, you know, exercising. They were they were issuing car carbon uh, emissions, um, or that their board wasn't sufficiently diverse, or that they weren't giving, you know, uh, appropriate uh, benefit to LGBT employees. Basically, using your authority, using your power as an investor and a government official to exercise to get political ends through investment means, and I I, I really find that uh, a troubling trend. And now, the, now that the left has been doing it for a few years, the right is absolutely going to pick it up. R.J. Lehman, uh, great stuff. Really appreciate the insight. I got a feeling we're going to be talking about this in a couple of weeks. Um, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that maybe somebody that loves him should get Elon Musk to not tweet for a couple of weeks. I don't think he will, because yeah. I think this thing is one tweet away from blowing up, but we'll see what happens. We'll see. Uh, appreciate your insight on this. We're going to have you back on to talk about this. We're going to put you in the regular rotation. You do good work, sir. Until we get you back though, let folks know where they can follow you, what you got going on, uh, what you do with that fancy EIC title that everybody covers, but nobody actually wants to do the work once they get it. And your social media, sir. So the, the International Center for Law and Economics, you can find us at laweconcenter.org. We, uh, we work uh, in the law and economics tradition of legal jurisprudence uh, and, uh, and seek to uh, promote scholars who work in that tradition. Uh, a lot of our work is on antitrust and tech issues. So uh, Twitter uh, and, 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 and Twitter's moderation issues are all things that uh, we're already very engaged in. And if you come to our website, you can see some of the things we've written about it. Fantastic. And he's a good Twitter buddy, a august and respected member of the Twitter <laughs> Supper Club because they do good eating down there in Florida and wherever right. his travels take him. Thank you so much for your time, sir. We'll have you back soon and continue to talk about these issues. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Tell. He's one of our favorites. He's been on here multiple times before. I still have to practice saying his name, James Arnowski. We love him to death. He's great on stuff like tech, on regulations, on big tech, and why it is and is not scary stuff. James, how are you today, my friend? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I love having you back. Okay. Uh, almost all the tech stuff has been relegated to the back page because uh, this guy named Elon Musk, you might have heard of him, uh, is trying to take over Twitter. Um, give me the sales pitch on it before we get into this. Give me the good and the bad of it because you actually know the technical side of this stuff. You know the regulatory side of this stuff, the stuff that's going on in Congress. What Turn the noise down for me. Give me the good and the bad of this story. Let's assume if Elon Musk is able to take over Twitter. Sure. So Elon Musk officially put out a bid to buy Twitter for $43 billion dollars. Um, this was because he felt that Twitter was not a viable option to be profitable and do well uh, if he had just stayed at the position that he was at, where he could have had a seat on the board and tried to change the company that way. 
he felt like that there were too many big changes that were needed with the company. So he felt like the only way to really go and put Twitter at its best position was if he completely bought it out and took it private. Uh, so he put the offer at $54.20 a share. Uh, nice little subtle 420 reference because of typical Elon fashion. Uh, so that's that's more or less the, the broad strokes of what happened here. Uh, originally, the board did try to resist the buyout from, from Elon by putting a poison pill into effect. But once Elon Musk had announced that he had secured the funding, so basically being able to put the money where his mouth was, uh, it made it very difficult for the board to resist accepting the offer because I think the reality was that they couldn't really find anybody that could go and match or beat his offer to be their white knight uh, or to come up with some other strategy that could justify to shareholders why they would turn down an offer uh, that benefits the shareholders because of their fiduciary responsibilities. So Elon's going to go and take over Twitter, assuming you know you cross the T's and dot the I's and everything's fine from a regulatory perspective with the FTC reviewing the deal. Uh, and now really the question is, is what is Elon Musk's Twitter look like? And I think that while he has certainly offered some glimpses as to what he thinks uh, Elon Twitter would look like, uh, that's a lot different when you're an armchair CEO versus an actual CEO of a company. So I think that he's got a, a lot to figure out in this space. And it'll be interesting to see out of everything that he has pontificated on, what becomes a reality versus what becomes just, you know, wordplay. Yeah. And one of the reasons everybody wants to talk about the content side of this, and I get that because that's what we use. It's a user platform. Let's yeah. take a second, though, and talk about the business side of this real quick, though, because that's the part that actually really matters here. One of the reasons the board felt they had to take this offer is because this is an insane amount of money for the platform when you look at its actual value. Now, this is all stock. This is all projected. We understand how those things work. But the thing about Twitter is, unlike Facebook, unlike um, Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and other platforms like that, Twitter doesn't make a lot of money. And I know everybody's seen that $44 billion, but as a business, Twitter has not worked as a business for quite some time, at least in the realm you would think it would with the amount of outside influence it has. So when they started seeing those dollar signs, that's kind of what really pushed this forward as much as anything Musk was doing, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that that's one of the underappreciated factors of the story. And that's something that I certainly harped on in, in numerous media interviews that I've done on the subject is that Twitter was not, and you, you can only afford to be what you can afford to be, right? You, Twitter could not afford to be a company that was extolling the virtues that it was when the company did not have healthy profit margins. It was having inconsistent revenue. Uh, it was having a hard time monetizing the users that they had in the same way that we've seen other big tech, if you will, uh, platforms be able to do this. So, you know, it, it did make it very difficult for the board to justify to shareholders if they were going to reject Elon Musk how they were going to go and produce similar, if not more, value to the shareholders than that buyout offer from Elon Musk to go private. So I think that there's a lot of uh, factors that ultimately led to it, but certainly because of the fact that Twitter was probably one of the more unsuccessful companies in terms of its ability to become profitable and viable on its own, that led to the opportunity for the company to get bought out. Now, because you study this stuff and you cover it and you know a lot more about it than I do, explain this to me like I'm five. There's still a regulatory review process here. This is, I, I know they've agreed to it, but still on paper, this is a hostile takeover. That's a very highly regulated thing. There's a lot of rules involved on that. There has to be, you know, there's got to be third party financing that has to be verified by another third party. 
just real quick, talk to people because I know everybody's acting like Elon's in charge already. He's not. This is going to take at least a couple months, probably at least into the winter to get all this done. Just talk about that process real quick, because you do understand the regulatory side of these things when it comes to these big tech companies. Yeah. So I think that it's uh, I think that the hostile takeover portion actually got removed when Elon changed his offer uh, a little bit to account for some things. So I don't think it's technically considered a hostile takeover anymore. It's just a proper buyout. Uh, you know, offer that was accepted by the company. Uh, so I think that now basically the big hurdle that remains is for the FTC to decide whether or not they're going to uh, weigh in and try to block this merger from going through for some reason. But like you mentioned, yes, there has to be uh, verification of assets. There has to be, you know, proof that people have the money they say that they're going to have in terms of buying out the company. There's also how many shareholders are going to accept that buyout offer or try to retain their shares in the company when it goes private in Elon's fashion. So particularly with that example, there was a Saudi prince that had a pretty sizable stake in Twitter that rejected his 54.20 offer, thinking that there was more value to Twitter than that. Now, given where the current price of Twitter is on the stock market, it seems like shareholders disagree with the prince from Saudi, uh, unsurprisingly. So uh, what's happening now is that it actually saved uh, Elon Musk over a billion dollars not having to go and pay this guy out uh, up front, right? So there's a lot of moving parts, but basically, like you said, there has to be verification of the money. The FTC has to decide whether or not they're going to try to block this from happening on antitrust grounds, potentially, which the Open Markets Institute uh, sent a letter to Chairman Khan, uh, Chairwoman Khan, rather, to go and say that there is justification for preventing this merger underneath the guise of uh, old rules that govern this space. Uh, I'm not entirely sure whether that bid will be successful or whether or not Chairwoman Khan will actually step in to try to prevent this from occurring. But uh, assuming that all that goes through, like you said, it's not like Elon Musk is in charge of Twitter right this second. This is this is literally going to take multiple months for all of it to get ironed out if it's if it's successfully acquired, which is why whenever Elon's tweeting about what he would do in Elon Twitter, it's always if the sale is approved, right? Uh, so we have to get to that point and then we can go and talk about it. But the funny thing, like you mentioned, is that people are treating it like Elon is owning Twitter right now. The placebo effect of it has been quite humorous to look at because you have conservatives saying, oh, we got more followers. We got more reach. You have liberals claiming that there's, you know, more uh, hate speech and, and whatever. But the reality is that Twitter has been Twitter this whole time. And as a matter of fact, because of the fact that they're in this process of getting bought out, they can't really do anything to change the product drastically because of the fact that that could impact their sale. Yeah. And let's, we're going to, we're going to talk about that portion of it, how everybody's avatar Elon Musk all of a sudden, we'll get to that in a minute. Let, let's stick to the business side of this for just a second though, because um, I, let me be the skeptic for a minute because I do this. I've been accused of being skeptical from time to time from by you and other folks. Uh, not too long ago, 2018, Musk got himself in trouble on Twitter because he talked about taking Tesla private and that cost him a nice $20 million fine. Tesla had to pay a $20 million fine. He had to step down as chairman of Tesla for at least five years. This is all the same people that are going to be doing some of the regulatory oversight of this deal. Normally in a deal, when you do this, everybody gets quiet until the deal's done. Now, I know Elon Musk is his own beast. I know he's a big celebrity. He's gone the other way. He's getting louder and louder and louder about all this. That's that's kind of a red flag to me of are we actually going to get there? Now, I know I'm in the minority opinion here, but just play along for a second. He does little things like the 420 stock price. He does little things like his latest tweet about they're going to have 69 million users. That's not accidental. Elon Musk does this stuff all the time. That's not an accidental number. 
Um, he gets louder and louder and louder about this. He's already gotten in trouble with his tweeting before. Am I wrong to have at least a little skepticism of, hey, this thing ain't done yet, and Elon Musk is pretty much a live wire that does what he wants and does not think things through like complicated business deals sometimes? No, I think it's perfectly healthy to have a decent bit of skepticism that the deal gets done uh, because it ain't over until everything's signed and approved by all the right parties. So I don't think that it's unreasonable to be skeptical especially with Elon's history with uh, tweeting. Now, he has been overly critical of the SEC's department, particularly that's located in San Francisco. They think that he's being targeted. And then with the DOJ and some other folks investigating Tesla more broadly, uh, there certainly is cause for him to believe that he is being targeted because of his heterodox thinking. That is just his opinion on the matter. But I think that, again, when we're looking at uh, Elon and, and his different tweets, it presents a unique problem because normally, like you said, these deals go through, everybody stays quiet, they just want to get it done and over with. But Elon's, you know, putting his thoughts out there uh, very openly and it could cause different problems. But that being said, none of it technically violates the term sheet that they signed for him to purchase Twitter. He can talk about Twitter and like what he would like to do underneath Musk Twitter, but he can't go and sit there and talk about the deal uh, in any kind of um, you know negative light or anything like that, because then that would be violating the, the actual terms of the agreement that he signed uh, with Twitter, and he'd pay like a one billion dollar uh, breakup fee uh, for not doing the following through with this transaction. So there's plenty of incentive for Elon to watch what he's saying if he genuinely does want this to go through. Um, and also it is worth noting that it's not like he has to put up the $43 billion anymore because uh, originally it was just going to be him half all the way through trying to do it through Tesla stock. But now he has half of it done through banks and he has other people that are electing to go and stay as shareholders in the new Musk Twitter. So there's lots of ways in which that he's mitigated some of the risk against himself. Yeah. Talking to our friend James Ranowski, uh, Young Voices contributor, really smart guy when it comes to this tech stuff. We're going to take a quick break. We come back on herd tell we're going to continue to talk about elon musk we're going to talk about the free speech aspect of this we're going to get into the content of twitter something james has done a lot james has done a lot of media on both sides of the spectrum i'm going to ask him about how some of the reaction has gone because he's got it from both ends uh, in a couple different places more with our buddy james on herd tell right after this Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Continuing with our friend. James Arnowski, great guy, really smart guy on this stuff. Make sure you're following. You'll see his Twitter handle on the bottom third graphic right there. Good guy. Always enjoy talking to him. Okay, I want to ask you this before we get into the content stuff. Everybody's got an opinion on this. You've done both uh, progressive and liberal media outlets. You've done conservative outlets. You're a good guy to ask about this because I've caught your interviews from both sides of the aisle on this thing. What's your read on how much this thing has become an avatar for people? Because, man, people sure got convinced in a hurry that Elon Musk was this, that, or the other just based off of this. I find it fascinating, but you've been out there. You've been doing these interviews. What's your feel of that? Because this really does seem like it's become a funnel for some of the ongoing culture war stuff, hadn't it? 
Well, I mean, that's no lie that Elon decided to buy Twitter in part because of his feelings about the current state of culture in the United States surrounding free speech. Uh, unironically, Elon Musk, like many uh, folks that we've heard in recent days, claims to be a uh, free speech absolutist, if you will. But then it's, there's always some kind of uh, articulation as to not being free speech absolutist that I find that typically follows that. Um, when, when we're talking about, you know, how this has been politicized very uh, virulently by either side of the aisle, it's not surprising, um, especially given Musk's rhetoric and how he operates to our point when we were going before the break, talking about Musk and his tweeting, getting in, in trouble. Uh, you know, that has certainly inflamed those that are on the liberal and progressive side of the spectrum because they see a guy who is insensitive to potential, you know, speech that could be deemed uh, hurtful and harmful something that we might not find particularly nice to see on the internet, more broadly speaking. That being said, on the flip side of the aisle, conservatives see this as like, you know, a, a good opportunity to try and rebalance the scales. Conservatives for the past several years have felt like big tech has been targeting them, right or wrong, that's how they feel. And they think that Elon Musk and his version of Twitter, which is supposed to be more free speech friendly, is a, is a potential solution that might offer more avenues for free speech uh, for conservatives on this subject matter altogether. So I think the reality is, is that both sides are probably overreacting to the news of Elon Musk buying Twitter. I don't think that Twitter is going to be radically shifted in a direction that either side of the aisle is going to particularly like. Um, you know, so I think that there's going to be some form of medium where some things on the margin are going to change. Uh, and we'll have to see how other things go in practice, because, again, he's been very, uh, you know, opinionated about stating that he does not want to go and permanently ban people. So this is a reference to Donald Trump. He has already announced that if he gets the sale approved, that he's going to go and uh, restore Donald Trump's account to Twitter. Whether or not Donald Trump chooses to use that remains to be seen. He has Truth Social that he's using uh, a little bit more now. So we'll have to just continue to monitor that. But I think that it's more about just seeing how the things lay out because it's one thing to be able to say all this stuff right now where none of the responsibility or accountability is on you right this second it's another thing to go and do it once you're actually in control and you are actually responsible for making this company that has been struggling profitable that's the number one concern i think that has to be there for musk is how to make twitter profitable for him because that $43 billion represents 20% of Elon's wealth as an individual. So it's not an unsizable investment for him. Yeah, and the Tesla folks are pretty openly nervous about this thing. If you get below the headlines and start reading into the stockholder stuff, but I'm talking about the real money people, not the fans. They, they've got questions about this because this is a big chunk of money going uh, in a different direction. Let me just put it to you directly then. I keep getting told on my social media that Elon Musk is a quote-unquote free speech absolutist. Is there evidence of that, though? Because I've seen some troubling things out of Elon Musk when it comes to things like free speech. And I'm not saying that he's not against it in principle, but in actions and practicalities, there's been a few things over the years that I've kind of went, mm, I'm not sure about that guy. Is his actions matching the rhetoric that people are putting on him that he's going to be this great champion of freedom of speech? Yeah, I think that that's the interesting thing. Uh, like I said, a lot of folks like to claim that they are free speech absolutists, and then there's usually always a caveat that follows that up. So Elon Musk claims to be a free speech absolutist, but he has had incidents over the years where, uh, for example, I know that there was an employee of Tesla that was going and showing the auto uh, drive functions uh, of his Tesla vehicles, got into an accident and was criticizing the company 
uh, for that. And that employee got fired. He tried going and gagging it. There was a Twitter account that was uh, actively tracking all the flights that Elon Musk was doing to see where he was at. Elon Musk tried gagging that too by buying the person out and then trying to sue to get the account taken down uh, because he thought that it was a violation of his privacy. So there's there's lots of ways in which Elon Musk's adherence to free speech principles doesn't necessarily uh, you know line up with what the actual ideal is supposed to be. But to be honest, that's that's any human. Like I, I find it hard to believe that you'll find a true free speech absolutist anywhere. I think that there's always the caveat of people saying free speech. Uh, and being pro-free speech is usually I like, you know, things that I like and not things that I don't like. Uh, they want to see less of those kinds of things. Uh, President Barack Obama did a talk at Stanford where he also invoked being a free speech uh, absolutist and then went on to go and talk about misinformation and disinformation and why he, you know, we need to go and crack down on that. So even though misinformation is still protected speech. So there's there's lots of ways in which I think people uh, like to go and invoke that language because there is a certain tenor about it that is, uh, I think, reminiscent of patriotism and, and the history of America and our founding principles, obviously. But in terms of people ever living up to it wholeheartedly, no one's ever going to do that. So it's not surprising to me that Elon Musk is not like this, you know, free speech absolutist in practice that he likes to claim that he is. Yeah, um, I, there's a couple of reporters that would uh, disagree with President Obama, but let's not rehash all that today. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Elon is giving us that very caveat going through his tweets. Um, he recently on uh, May the 9th, which is just a couple of days ago, as we sit and record this, he got into a conversation with Sir Novik of all people, which somebody who loves him needs to get a hold of him and be like, quit tweeting with certain people. And that's one of them. But that's neither here nor there. And talking about left wing bias. And he straight up says that Twitter obviously has a left wing bias. But then he tweeted this. I'm going to quote it because I found it very interesting and it peaked my ears up. He said, like I said, my preference is to hew close to the laws of countries in which Twitter operates. If the citizens want something banned then pass a law to do so, otherwise it should be allowed. And the reason that caught my attention is on the surface, that's pretty standard tech bro speech for, you know, especially with the EU and some of the restrictions over there. Elon Musk has a lot of money riding on China. China, if you're going to apply that to China, that means you're going to follow their rules, which are very restrictive. I don't see him criticizing China the way he's criticizing America and the situation in Ukraine and the EU, which he has had a long running battle with on a couple different levels. That shows up as a red flag to me. How does it feel to you? Yeah, I, I, you're not the first person to obviously point out the China ties. I think that uh, there's they, like with any of the American companies that have operations and interests tied with China, that it's not surprising that perhaps you take a little bit more cautious of a tone uh, when even thinking about entering the realm of, of the Asia markets. Uh, so it's not surprising that, uh, you know, maybe he's a little bit more careful since a lot of the, uh, I believe it's his batteries for the Teslas that get produced over there in China. Um, so there's definitely, I think, a valid concern there to, you know, vet out. We'll have to see how that is. But even within that statement, right, like it actually goes in, then goes when cuts against his exact point of being a free speech absolutist insofar as that if you're talking about this in the American context, uh, you know, one would think that you'd want to apply this across the board, no matter where you operate, but then you're acquiescing to the localities, which there are a lot of localities that have a lot more restrictive speech laws on the books than, you know, might be ideal by American values. Um, so I think that that's actually something that's a little self-defeating. So the EU commissioner uh, was actually just at his Tesla plant in Austin, Texas, and then posted a video with him 
uh, and then tried to basically insinuate that Elon more or less endorsed the DSA, the Digital Services Act, uh, European tech regulation of social media um, and the internet more broadly speaking. And I think that that's actually a horrible thing uh, that the EU commissioner did that only because Elon doesn't own Twitter yet. And he, Elon is not a politician. The man does not think about any of that kind of stuff. And I think like if we said, hey, we want to go and crack down on, uh, you know, uh, hateful speech or like whatever, there's certain broad stroke things that I think people can broadly agree to. But then like anything else, the devil's in the details. Um, so that's that that kind of stuff, I think, is definitely worth having a closer examination at. And it was just completely inappropriate, in my view, at least for the EU commissioner to go and leverage Elon in that kind of a position, because what's he going to say, like, especially because he has those vested interests in Europe. Um, I think that at the end of the day, there's there's a lot of balancing parts that have to get you know taken into account. And we'll have to see, because, again, this is going to be the actual test is how how is this actually going to be applied in practice? across markets that have different kinds of speech rules. Yeah, is uh, the commissioner's name, Theory Brenton. And Elon actually tweeted the video, retweeted the video that that man put out and then said, great meeting, we were on the exact same page underneath it. Uh, we're going to have to keep a close eye on that one going forward. All right, since you brought it up, uh, let me just go there with it. We just talked to our friends in the UK about this a couple of days ago. Let's take something like the UK where like, you know, whenever I do an interview, the FCC, because this goes out on radio, I have to tell my guests, hey, we got to be FCC compliant. Don't curse on the air if you can help it. Right. Well, if you go over to the UK, you can curse on the air, but you don't have the libel law protections in the UK that I have on this program where I can say things about certain people and I have legal protections. How's stuff like that's going to play with something like Twitter, where we've seen things like in the UK, where the tabloids and others have wound up in court over uh, libel laws, slander laws over what we call pretty run of the mill uh, statements. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, again, this is where people don't realize just how permissive our, our speech is on Twitter and Facebook and a lot of these platforms. You can complain about their decisions that they make. And there certainly is some, you know, uh, veracity to wanting to complain about how they are making some decisions sometimes. But I think that at the end of the day, we are still far more permissive on our platforms in the United States than anywhere else in the world, bar none. No one comes even remotely close. So with the UK, they have an online harms bill right now, which includes trying to tackle things. It tries categorizing the risk. It tries sitting there and saying, oh, like suicide and misinformation and all this other kind of material that's out there and trying to regulate that speech, which again, if it was in the United States, would get struck down by a court as being unconstitutional for trying to infringe upon the free speech rights that Americans hold dear, um, which include topics that we do find uncomfortable at the end of the day. But the UK is trying to legislate this. I know like in part of their report for trying to justify why they want to do this, they cite the fact that children are exposed to uh, rap music online and, and uh, you know, cursing that might happen there to our point about our FCC compliance versus non-FCC compliance. Um, I think that it's, it's very fascinating to see, um, you know, the UK and other worlds, I think, just do a great job of highlighting just how special the United States is. Uh, we, we have a very permissive culture for speech, although that is culturally, at least, getting hit down a little bit with the way that uh, some folks handle speech, particularly with like weaponizing the notion of misinformation and other things. So I think that we can certainly be better about that conversation. Uh, and it'll be interesting to continue to monitor that going forward. Yeah, James Zarnowski, uh, you are always on point with your stuff. You get better every time I talk to you, my friend. I really appreciate your insight on these things. Definitely will have you back. It's been too long since we've had you on, but you're a busy man. It's hard to get you on the show nowadays. 
Um, until we get you back on again, though, let folks know where they can follow you on your social media, your writing. You're doing a ton of media stuff. So let them know where they can keep up with you, see all your clips and your great writing. And some of the, because you've got a lot of regulatory things you're keeping your eye on. Let folks know what you're doing with that as well, my friend. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at jamescz19. That's where I usually pontificate and throw a lot of my bad takes out there uh, <laughs> on tech policy and all other musings that's going on, like my haircut that was overdue by five months. But you've got uh, Twitter is probably the best place to follow me. I have my own personal website at jamesstranowski.com, uh, where I try to go and update from time to time with any writing and media hits that I do do. Uh, and also, I always recommend following Young Voices uh, as an organization on Twitter uh, and on their website. They also update whenever I do media hits with great people like yourself and others. Yeah, we're really proud of Young Voices. That's where we um, we had James on back before I was officially part of Young Voices, actually. Uh, they do great work, just celebrated their anniversary. And uh, the haircut looks great. I was giving you a little hard time, but to be honest, I got to go get one today, too, because I got a kid graduating high school this weekend, so I got to go slick up, too. So, uh, my friend, I always appreciate the time. Always enjoy talking to you. Let's do it again soon, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Thank you. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. It's